don't you have a word to show what may be done? Have you never heard a way to find the sun? Tell me all that you may know. Show me what you have to show. Won't you come and say if you know the way to bloom? Have you seen the land living by the breeze? Can you understand a light among the trees? Tell me all that you may know. Show me what you have to show. Tell us all today if you know the way to blue. Look through time, find your rhyme. Tell us what you find. We will wait at your gate, hoping like the blind. Can you now recall all that you have known? Will you never fall when the light has flown? Tell me all that you may know. Show me what you have to show. Won't you come and say if you know the way to blue? Hello, welcome to episode 23 of Life and Life Only. This is the music, magic, and tragedy of Nick Drake. So, as is traditional, I'll be reading an essay that I've written recently and then I'll be interjecting. Before that, I'll just give you a little bit of my history with Nick Drake and tell you exactly what's coming up in this episode. So I actually discovered him quite late. It was around 2011, I think, and it was the Family Tree album. Now, this was an album of outtakes that was released, I think, in 2007, but it was quite a good uh, starting point for me because it was actually demos and alternative versions that were made before he recorded his albums, mostly from 67 and 68, and his first album was 1969. He's drifted in and out of my life since then. One of the big debates, which you'll hear addressed later on in this episode, is whether his music is happy or sad. Is it depressing or is it uplifting? And I'd say it's mostly uplifting. But uh, he has become this tragic figure. As you'll hear, if you don't know anything about Nick Drake, you will understand why when we get to the end of this story, certainly. Just recently, I was on a podcast called Love That Album with Maurice Bozinski. And that started another flurry of Nick Drake activity in my life. So that was scheduled for November. It was scheduled quite a while ago, in fact. And in preparation for that, I listened to the album that we were going to review, Nick Drake's first album. But I listened to all, the, all of the albums, in fact, because there's only three. And I also reread Patrick Humphrey's biography, just called Nick Drake, a biography, which came out in 1997. 
I also rewatched the two main documentaries, Skin Too Few and A Stranger Among Us. I was so inspired by all that that I wrote the essay that you're about to hear, which is 26 pages, and it was just a, you know, a flurry of activity for a couple of days. I also uh, recorded an acoustic version of Way to Blue, which you heard at the beginning there, and also got Kester Jones, who produced my albums when I was in Madrid, also was a guitarist and multi-instrumentalist, in fact, and his musical and romantic partner, Melanie Lawrence, to record a song for Morris's podcast, and they recorded cello song which you're going to hear later and we felt that uh, there was more to explore so at around the midpoint of the essay I'm going to break off and you're going to hear a conversation between myself and Kester where he demonstrates some of Nick's playing. A video version will be available for subscribers that will come out probably early next year. Now since I wrote my blog post which was uh, I think about a month ago now I decided to read the second Nick Drake biography, which is Darker Than the Deepest Sea by Trevor Dan. It was written 10 years later, so with the benefit of all the extra information that was available then. And it cleverly, rather than rehashing the first biography, it sort of filled in the gaps of that one, took a slightly different approach. I would say it's much more um, cynical or realistic. And you might want to look at one of the earlier episodes of Life and Life Only where I address this idea that cynicism or scepticism can be a good thing and that ultra-positivity... You know, positivity is obviously a, a place for it, but sometimes it can be a little bit less realistic. So um, Trevor Dan's book had a different tone, but, you know, it wasn't markedly different. Anyone who's migrated from my John Lennon podcast will know about the Coleman and Goldman thing. Yeah, there were two very, very contrasting biographies of John Lennon. These are not so different, but uh, Trevor Dan's book is a very good compliment to the first one. So I've taken a few notes from that book, and those will be basically the interjections. So uh, I think we should get started because there's, uh, there's a lot here. The title I gave the essay, in fact, was Thoughts on Nick Drake. So here goes. This is not going to be an exhaustive look at Nick Drake, but a general chronology of his short life with some analysis of his music and lyrics and thoughts on what may have caused the dramatic downward spiral of three to four years that turned a relatively happy young man with enormous talent, good looks and a very privileged station in life into an uncommunicative shell who had become yet another of Rock's casualties, too young even to join the 27 Club. He missed out by one year. For the reader not so familiar with Nick's music and the chronology of his work, and since I will occasionally be referring to the other albums while discussing a particular one, the salient facts are that he released three studio albums, starting with Five Leaves Left in the autumn of 1969, and followed by Brighter Later in late 1970, and Pink Moon in early 1972. The beauty of Nick's short discography is how different the three albums are and how they reflect, as will be seen, the place and indeed the state of mind in which they were largely composed. In addition, Five Leaves Left features some amount of accompaniment to Nick's ever-present acoustic guitar and vocal, Brighter Later goes for a full band sound throughout, and finally Pink Moon is stripped back to just acoustic guitar and vocal, save for one piano part. I can't recommend highly enough that readers listen to all the albums and in chronological order, either before, during, or after reading this piece, or indeed all three. They are all gifts that keep giving, and in intriguingly different ways. A great deal of the biographical detail comes from Patrick Humphrey's excellent book, Nick Drake, A Biography, and I'd also highly recommend the documentaries A Skin Too Few, The Days of Nick Drake, and A Stranger Among Us, which featured heavily a lot of Nick's very well-spoken contemporaries from his university and professional lives, in a room, discussing and sometimes arguing about Nick and his life and music. Do you curse where you come from, is a lyric from the song Hazy Jane 1 
on the second album. Nick Drake's story starts with his father Rodney moving to Burma, now Myanmar, in the 1930s as an engineer with the Bombay Burma Trading Corporation. He met Nick's mother Molly, who it later emerged was also a songwriter, and they had two children, starting with Gabrielle, who would become a successful stage and television actress. Nick followed in 1948, and two years later, the close and apparently happy family relocated back to England, settling at a house called Farley's in a quaint and very safe village called Tanworth in Arden, south of Birmingham and just down the road from the birthplace of the bard, William Shakespeare, in Stratford-upon-Avon. Now, a famous writer wrote of the myth of a happy childhood, and Patrick Humphrey's book tends to give the impression, which may well be accurate, that Nick did have a happy childhood. Trevor Dan tends to look at the fact that Nick went to, um, I think it's called a pre-prep school, boarding school called Eagle House in Berkshire. He was essentially sent as a young boy 120 miles from home. This was a norm in uh, privileged society in Britain at that time. And there are various accounts. What you will learn with any history of anything, people generally don't always agree on everything and they will swear that they witnessed one thing another person will swear that they witnessed another. You may know already that uh, I'm a great scholar of the Titanic story and uh, it was interesting that when some of the survivors were taken off the lifeboats and onto the rescue ship Carpathia, they were discussing what had happened and they couldn't even agree on what happened literally a few hours earlier. So there you go. Everything like this involves some intuition on the part of the reader when you're hearing different accounts. So Eagle House was one account, quite a laid-back place, but then other accounts say that there were probably canings and beatings, again, which was fairly normal, not so much at this point, but certainly in the early 20th century. So you have to make up your own mind to some extent. Trevor Dan's book also talks about Nick being an appropriate social fit, and there's um, one phrase, uncontaminated by real life. You know, there's obviously a case to be made that if you're upper middle class, you are somewhat shielded from certain realities of life, and that may have been significant later on. With Molly Drake's songwriting, there's two songs of hers, in fact, Poor Mum and Do You Ever Remember on the Family Tree album. Do You Ever Remember is quite curious. I'm presuming that it was written long before Nick died. I don't know that for sure, but it almost sounds like a song to Nick. And um, there's a kind of wistful melancholy to her songs, as there is with Nick's first album, Five Leaves Left. And in both cases, I feel like they're not writing from personal experience, but it's, um, it's a sense of melancholy that they both put in the music. So I think she did influence him, but I wouldn't say that Molly Drake and Nick Drake's music necessarily sounds similar. Anyway, continuing... His life, up to the release of his first record in 1969, seems to have been nothing but happy. With any person who dies young, there is often a tracing back of their earlier life to attempt to find cracks in the facade. In Nick's case, he was always shy and was a classic introvert in its truest sense, meaning that his social energy was somewhat limited and he was known to leave social gatherings rather abruptly. Having been in this situation myself many times, I can tell you that it can be extremely uncomfortable when your tank of sociability suddenly runs dry and you want nothing more than to be home and alone, or at least in safe and quiet surroundings. Having said that, the only known extended audio of Nick's speaking happens to have been recorded just before 5am after a boozy night out. We know the time because Nick tells the tape the precise time. What is striking about this tape and his voice is that it paints a clear picture of a slightly apologetic, well-spoken teenager who is clearly of the upper middle class and uses the pronoun one repeatedly to describe himself. Just as a good booze-up will cause a working-class Cockney's true origins to be revealed in the exaggeration of that accent, 
So happens with the squiffy Nick Drake on this tape. Squiffy, by the way, is an upper-class word for drunk. After boarding school in Berkshire came Marlborough College, a well-established and prestigious public school located in Wiltshire in the west of England. At this point, it needs to be explained that, for reasons too complicated to go into here, the term public school in England refers to a fee-paying elite school, so quite the opposite of its meaning in other countries, where it is essentially a state school. He was at Marlborough from 1962 to 1966, and uncommonly for a later rock star, term used loosely, he was an excellent athlete, particularly strong as a sprinter and also in rugby and hockey. He was a popular and seemingly very well-adjusted young man with the world at his feet, and there was no real hint of what was to come. However, one of his peers later talked of, quote, a part you could never reach. Diffident is a word often applied to him, and rather curiously, he seemed to be a person who didn't smile much, but would laugh with friends at things he found amusing. A subtle, but perhaps not completely insignificant distinction. So, in terms of Nick as a student, even at Marlborough, he was apparently rather less than committed. He did have a band called the Perfumed Gardeners, and he was the leader mostly due to his musical prowess and uh, maybe his physical stature, and one of his bandmates talks of his quiet authority. He took up smoking quite early, apparently, smoking gouloir cigarettes, which are French, and uh, they're very strong cigarettes, so uh, there may be an element of self-medication. That's my theory with smoking, anyway. Musically, he was at the time playing piano, clarinet, and alto sax, was in various bands during his academic career. Amusingly, Chris, the lady in red, de Burr, was a contemporary and was rejected by one of Nick's bands for being too short. Nick was a jazz fan, but with a keen ear for the changes that swept through the popular music scene during his four-year tenure at Marlborough. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and particularly Bob Dylan, and I'll add Donovan to that as well, would have a huge effect on his musical appreciation, and he and friends would make trips to London to watch bands and indulge in alcohol and cigarettes, but not cannabis at this point. Nick certainly liked to drink and socialise well with people who he knew and felt safe with. Now, let me just interject. In summer 1965, he took his A-levels and didn't do well. He got a D in history, an E in English, and an F, i.e. a fail, in Latin translation with Roman history, which sounds like quite a curious subject, but anyway. I believe that he took up the guitar that summer. There'll be more about that in a second. He then retook his A-levels the following year and got B-E-E, but managed to go through the cramming system and get his way into Cambridge University, which we'll get to in a second. From summer 1966, he essentially took a gap year before he was due to start reading, i.e. studying English literature at Cambridge University the following autumn. He seemed to always enjoy driving, and when he and friends went camping in France that summer, Nick was behind the wheel of his mother's Morris Minor. There's some speculation about maybe he enjoyed running because it was a solitary activity. With the driving, it seems like he drove his friends around a lot, but Later on, he would do a lot of driving on his own. You know, he was a classic introvert. But as I said earlier, an introvert doesn't always mean shy and not confident. It's to do with limited social energy. And it's it's really an extrovert gets their energy from being with other people, whereas an introvert doesn't experience that. So it stands to reason that they would spend more time on their own. Anyway, he'd got his first guitar the previous year and seemed to make remarkable progress, prompting some amusing speculation about a Robert Johnson-esque pact with a devil in return for his prodigious skills. In reality, an inward-looking character like Nick probably just loved being with this new friend who didn't ask anything of him and was a source of endless curiosity, creativity and perhaps emotional catharsis. He wouldn't be the first. 
Ben Laycock, a friend who accompanied Nick on one or other of these carefree trips, describes being remarkably moved by Nick's performances around the proverbial or actual campfire, amazed because he'd, quote, never met anyone of my age who could do anything that well to get those incredible sounds out of the guitar. Nick's playing in those early days already had these characteristic open tunings and immaculate, rather mesmeric technique that was so precise as to be metronomic, in the very best sense of the word, with a machine-like power and stunning virtuosity. You can now find videos on YouTube of guitarists doing a pretty good job of replicating the tunings, notes and patterns, but there's still an internal mystery as to what precisely he was playing and how he came upon a style that seemed familiar but utterly unique at the same time. In the autumn of 1966, Nick went to stay for a short time with his sister Gabrielle in London, and it was around this time that he smoked his first joint, albeit certainly not with her, an event which may or may not be of significance concerning his later breakdown. I would have to say after reading the second biography that it probably was of pretty high significance. In January 1967, while the Beatles were recording the early tracks for their Sgt Pepper album, including the masterpiece A Day in the Life, Nick and Jeremy Mason, later to be immortalised in the song Three Hours, went to Aix-en-Provence in the south of France for six months, ostensibly to study and improve their French. They busked in Aix and Saint-Tropez, and it was there that some of Nick's earliest compositions were written and his first home recordings committed to tape. One of the things that Humphreys perhaps didn't put in his book was to do with the tension that was caused between Nick and his father Rodney with Nick's uh, less-than-committed studies and the not-very-good results in his A-levels that I just mentioned earlier. So, yes, they were sent to this university. I think the idea was that with his English studies, he would need to translate from French to English, so he needed some rudimentary knowledge of that language. But it seems clear from the beginning that they weren't particularly committed to that either. Mason later recalled that there were warning signs at this point in the form of regular cannabis use and possibly LSD, and a certain intensity that Nick took on as he focused on his music and practiced like a man possessed. Nick went on at one point to Marrakesh, famous for its high-strength hash, and appears to have had an encounter there with the Rolling Stones, whose own trip would take the form of a psychodrama as Anita Pallenberg escaped the clutches of her physically abusive boyfriend, Brian Jones, and fell straight into the arms of his bandmate, Keith Richards. Nick apparently played some songs for the Stones, and they responded positively. So um, when they went to X, they apparently made no arrangements for accommodation, but seemed to enjoy the freewheeling style of it. X was a city of culture, it was a birthplace of Cezanne, Now, one of the things that is addressed later in the essay is to do with um, Nick's uh, contact with women. And it seems now that there were, he did have a lot of contact with women, may have even have had a threesome at one point. But one of his friends describes Nick as seeming to, quote, float above the carnal world of student sex. I wouldn't say that he felt he was above it, but maybe was just away from that. And it appears that in X, Nick found a group of expat socialites and old Etonians and Yes, did start to use pot and almost certainly LSD. And it is posited that the lyrics of the song Clothes of Sand are quite psychedelic and allude to the LSD experience. One of the people he met was uh, Roddy Llewellyn, who later had a relationship with Princess Margaret. And when they went to Marrakesh, they went via Granada in Spain and then Tangier. And one of his friends described him as coming back from X, quote, lost in the guitar. He enrolled at Cambridge's Fitzwilliam College in October 1967, but was disappointed to be sequestered in digs that resembled a 1960s daycare centre and were quite far out of town and away from the action. Another quote about Fitzwilliam was that it was like 
booking three years at the Savoy and being allocated a room in the Slough Travel Lodge. And in fact, I used to live near Slough, and David Brent's the office was obviously set there. Slough is not known as a glamorous place. He seemed a lacklustre student and didn't make a big impression as he had at Marlborough. Some of his peers, both his Cambridge and London friends and acquaintances, who featured in the documentary A Stranger Among Us, report a lot of dope smoking and frittering away of whole days at a time, but also a lot of music and creative productivity, if not academic. Nick met Robert Kirby at this time, and among their adventures was a failed audition for the comedy troupe The Cambridge Footlights Review. Other students at Cambridge at that time included Ian MacDonald, who would later write the highly regarded analysis of the Beatles' recorded output Revolution in the Head, and would eventually take his own life. Nick's seeming remoteness from others has always begged the question of how much of it was conscious image-building, since both Nick and his peers must have sensed that he was something a bit special. He certainly looked the part with his velvet jacket and Cuban-heeled boots to complement his soft features, boyish face and flowing locks. He was described as quiet but knowing and just passing through, always on the edge of things. At times his friends couldn't quite believe what they had on their hands, especially when they heard his original songs with their poetic lyrics, delivered with his unique voice and increasingly prodigious guitar playing. He would later become famous for not enjoying or barely ever engaging in live performances. His sister and others attest that at this point he enjoyed it very much. He's known to have played the May Ball in June at the more centrally placed Caius College in Cambridge, backed by Robert Kirby's orchestra, and another definite early gig was a 21st birthday bash at the Pitt Club in Cambridge. Women found him adorable, but even at this happy stage of his life, attachments and assignations with the opposite sex were conspicuous by their seemingly total absence. As I said earlier, there wasn't a total absence, but there was an absence. There is no hint of homosexuality, so asexuality, or a simple lack of confidence in that area, seemed to be possibilities and maybe another potential key to his later demise. So let me interject by saying that I don't think at this point that it was asexuality. I think it was, uh, yes, a lack of confidence, and I think the pot smoking as well may have led to a certain apathy, which perhaps extended to that area of his life. It's thought to be February 1968, just a few months into his university studies, when he was discovered by Fairport Convention bassist Ashley Hutchings at a gig at the Roundhouse in London, where Nick was supporting Country Joe and the Fish. Surprisingly, Hutchings was taken with Nick's charisma more than his music, picking up on his legendary on-stage stoop, but finding in him a quiet assurance and magnetic stage presence. He immediately contacted Joe Boyd, an American who at 26 was already something of a legend in the business. Boyd had been production manager at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival, where Bob Dylan went electric, had run Electra Records' London office, was involved with the underground UFO club in London, and had overseen the first recordings of Pink Floyd and Soft Machine. He'd recently set up his own record label, Witch Season, named after the Donovan song Season of the Witch, and had Fairport Convention and John and Beverly Martin among his roster. There's a picture of uh, Joe Boyd from that time. He looks amazingly like Nick Drake, so that may have been something to do with the bond. It's possible that, in fact, the gig at the Roundhouse was just before Christmas 67. It was a five-day event, but I think other than that, those details are accurate. From there, things moved quickly, at least in terms of the starter recordings for his first album. Nick delivered a reel-to-reel tape of demos recorded during the recent Christmas holidays, and he and Joe Boyd met and quickly developed a strong bond, the easygoing and wise beyond his years Boyd becoming both a producer and mentor to the shy young hopeful. I think Chris Blackwell, 
who was the legendary um, owner of Island Records, met Nick first. And Nick gave him a demo tape, which he then improved at Cambridge. I think that's the way that it went there. He signed a contract in summer 1968. It was apparently a terrible contract, which was really not unusual. If you know anything about the story of many bands, including the Beatles, these contracts were always uh, gave the artist peanuts and gave a lot of power to the manager and the label. Trevor Dan is more critical of Joe Boyd than uh, Patrick Humphreys. Again, who knows, but I think there was a certain norm that existed in the music business, which still exists to some extent, and possibly could be even worse with the, the general rise of corporations and their power. But I think it's fair to say that Joe Boyd did a lot of good for Nick Drake. Now, in Nick's second year at Cambridge, he joined a society called the Loungers, and uh, the loungers obviously gives the the image of lounging around, and uh, I think there was a lot of uh, it was a it's a very unofficial society. A lot of it was observing people listening to records and almost certainly smoking lots of weed and drinking. Nick at this time apparently fell in love with a nurse, but was quite half-hearted about doing anything about it. So before we get to the recording of Five Leaves Left, his first album, I should point out some other information. He used to stay in Battersea with Gabrielle, had a flat there. But he spent a lot of time in Chelsea, and he got involved with some wealthy socialites and debutantes, what could be called the Flower Power Intelligentsia. And again, there was definitely pot and LSD going on there. At some point, he met Sophia Ride, who was um, one of his, let's say, sort of girlfriends, as Linda Thompson would be later. And it appears that Nick was very sloppy at this point in his personal habits, which would suggest drugs. He would spend his money on weed, but he definitely did still like recording. As we said earlier, there were gigs at Cambridge. So, continuing. The recordings for Five Leaves Left, engineered by John Wood at Sound Techniques Studios, began in July 1968, but took nearly a year. The protracted period, due partly to the fact that Nick was still a student and having to skip lectures in Cambridge and continually travel to and from the studio in London, and also owing to the problems of installing a new 8-track machine at Sound Techniques. There was also Nick's perfectionism. He may have been quiet, but he knew what he wanted, a trait that would generally continue even in the darkest days to come. As expected, Nick's own guitar and voice parts, done live together, were put down on tape quickly and efficiently, and it was noted how remarkably consistent he was if multiple takes were ever required. John Wood's mic placements were credited with achieving the fine sound of the album, and Joe Boyd was also praised for his production work. However, there was some tension over Boyd's belief that the songs needed a fuller band sound, which he would fully realise on the second album, Brighter Later, while Nick preferred a stripped-down approach, which indeed he would get on the third and final album, Pink Moon. Compromises were made and some adornments were added to the songs. Nick was unhappy with the original string arrangements by Richard Hewson, and so drafted in his Cambridge friend Robert Kirby to redo them. Joe Boyd describes hearing Way to Blue, featuring just Nick's voice and Kirby's strings, and being taken aback by its beauty. Among the other musicians were double bass player Danny Thompson, who'd previously played on recordings by Donovan and the Electric String Band. Just prior to the album's release, Nick decided to leave Cambridge after his second year to seek his fortune in the music business. His father tried to dissuade him and talked of a safety net, Nick telling him, the last thing I want is a bloody safety net. So yes, Nick wrote to his tutor, and um, Rodney Drake was apparently very angry incandescent with rage. Five Leaves Left was released in September 1969 on Island Records, 
which had recently acquired Witch Season for licensing purposes. And as I said earlier, the man who ran Ireland was Chris Blackwell, a public schoolboy from London who'd spent an idyllic childhood in Jamaica. And by 1969, Ireland had established itself as Britain's leading independent record label. The album's title is generally assumed to refer to the warning inside a packet of Rizzlers to say that only five skins remained. However, it may have come from a 1907 short story called The Last Leaf by US writer O. Henry. A young painter dying of pneumonia prolongs his life by focusing on the ivy growing outside. He counts the remaining leaves on the ivy vine and there are now five left. When the last one falls, I must go too. Along with the lyrical nods on the album to the idea of borrowed time, some have speculated that Nick may have known that he was always doomed. It's more likely at this stage, however, that he was living out some kind of romantic image of the sensitive, misunderstood poet who enters and exits the world without anyone ever truly knowing or reaching him. I've never personally been comfortable attaching adjectives to music, but a recent close listen with special attention paid to the accompanying instruments and lyrics was quite revealing. The album's music no doubt generally evokes a pastoral mood, and the lyrics are poetic, betraying the fact that Nick was studying English literature at Cambridge, with particular emphasis on the classic poets. His acoustic guitar is wonderfully played and recorded throughout, as it would be on all his albums, and Robert Kirby's string arrangements add a great deal and are tasteful at all times. Nick plays like a virtuosic demon on Three Hours, and cello song in particular, and his voice sounds beautiful and warm throughout. The biggest question musically would seem to be how much the other instruments, outside of Kirby's strings, really add to or detract from the overall effect. On Time Has Told Me, the piano is nice, but Richard Thompson's electric guitar, though very well played, seems to be an adornment there somewhat for the sake of it. The double bass works okay, particularly on Three Hours, but seems to be out on a limb in Man in a Shed and generally makes less sense than on the album Brighter Later, where there are drums to lock in with. Now, when I was on this podcast, Love That Album with Morris, he very much disagreed with me, and uh, you'll get to hear uh, Kester Jones's opinion later on as well. The bongos seem to be a bad misstep on three hours, but work better on cello song, and on the final song, Saturday Sun, we get some lovely bluesy piano from Nick himself, good use of vibraphone, and finally bass and drums together, creating a groove that would anticipate the next album. Lyrically, Nick tends to come up with great first verses to songs, which he often repeats at the end, a songwriting trait that would continue into the other albums. Rather than give a detailed analysis of his lyrics, here are a few key lines from each song in order to allow you, the reader, to decide, or listener in this case, what they may or may not mean. One thing to note when listening to the album is the interesting juxtaposition of somewhat fatalistic lyrics with upbeat music and the wonderfully calm and soothing quality of Nick's voice. Also note the remarkably prescient lyrics to Riverman, which seem to anticipate Nick's relationship with fame, both during his life and beyond. So I'm just going to read these rather than sing them. Uh, I'll let Nick Drake do that. Time has told me. Time has told me you're a rare, rare find. A troubled cure for a troubled mind. Time has told me not to ask for more, because someday our ocean will find its shore. A soul with no footprint, a rose with no thorn. Riverman. Betty came by on her way, said she had a word to say about things today and fallen leaves. Going to see the river man, going to tell him all I can about the plan for lilac time. If he tells me all he knows about the way his river flows, I don't suppose it's meant for me. Three hours. Three hours from sundown, Jeremy flies, hoping to keep the sun from his eyes. East from the city and down to the cave, in search of a master, in search of a slave. Three hours is needed to leave from the mall. 
three hours to wonder, three hours to fall. Waiter Blue, don't you have a word to show what may be done? Have you never heard a way to find the sun? Tell me all that you may know, show me what you have to show. Won't you come and say, if you know the way to Blue? Have you seen the land living by the breeze? Can you understand a light among the trees? Look through time and find your rhyme, tell us what you find. We will wait at your gate, hoping like the blind. Day is done. When the day is done, down to earth sinks the sun. Then you find you jump the gun, have to go back to where you begun. When the day is done. When the bird is flown, got no one to call your own, got no place to call your home. Lost much sooner than you would have thought, now the game's been fought. When the party's through, seems so very sad for you, didn't do the things you meant to do. Now there's no time to start anew. Now the party's through. Cello song. For the dreams that came to you when so young, told of a life where spring is sprung. So forget this cruel world where I belong. I'll just sit and wait and sing my song. And if one day you should see me in the crowd, lend a hand and lift me to your place in the cloud. The thoughts of Mary Jane. Who can know the thoughts of Mary Jane? Why she flies or goes out in the rain? where she's been and who she's seen in her journey to the stars. Who can know the reasons for her smile? What are her dreams, the way she sings and her brightly coloured rings, make her the princess of the sky? Who can know what happens in her mind? Did she come from a strange world and leave her mind behind? Man in a Shed There was a girl who lived nearby. Whenever he saw her, he could only sigh. She lived in a house so big and grand. For him it seemed like some very distant land. This story is not so very new. The man is me and the girl is you. So leave your house, come into my shed. Please stop the world from raining through my head. Fruit tree. Fame is but a fruit tree, so very unsound. It can never flourish till its stalk is in the ground. Life is but a memory, happened long ago. Theatre full of sadness for a long forgotten show. Seems so easy just to let it go on by, till you stop and wonder why you never wondered why. Safe in a womb of an everlasting light, you find the darkness can give the brightest light. Safe in your place, deep in the earth, that's when they'll know what you're really worth. And finally, Saturday sun. Saturday sun came early one morning in a sky so clear and blue. Saturday sun brought people and faces that didn't seem much in their day. But when I remember those people and places, they were really too good in their way. Think about stories with reason and rhyme circling through your brain and think about people in their season and time, returning again and again. But Saturday sun has turned to Sunday's rain, so Sunday sat in the Saturday sun, and wept for a day gone by. So I'll let you make your own interpretation of those. It was nice actually to read them just as lyrics, rather than singing them, because you really see what the themes are. There's lots of stuff about the elements, and uh, you know, Mary Jane's obviously an allusion to to marijuana, but... um, he sings about Hazy Jane on the second album, so there's these sort of goddess figures or these female figures who are, you can never quite reach. And it feels like sometimes when he's singing about Mary Jane and Hazy Jane, that may be somewhat autobiographical because it sounds a little bit similar to what other people said about Nick Drake. The Island Records blurb for the album played up Nick's mystery and rootlessness as well as his love of the blues, a feature of Nick that gets somewhat lost in his label of folk singer. The later compilation Family Tree which chronologically features the first Nick Drake recordings, home demos from 1967 to 68, offers a fascinating juxtaposition of American blues songs sung with a husky-voiced English accent, and friends remember that Nick's default when jamming, if he wasn't playing his own songs, was more blues than anything else. 
Once again, it seems that the spectre of his own blues may not have ever been too far away. Five Leaves Left was reviewed in both Melody Maker and the New Musical Express, later known as the NME. The latter review included the admission that, quote, I'm sorry I can't be more enthusiastic about this album, because he obviously has a not inconsiderable amount of talent, but there is not nearly enough variety on this album to make it entertaining. In a packed field, the album didn't get too much attention, and Nick's lack of willingness to promote it, with regular live performances and interviews, didn't help. His Cambridge friends were enormously impressed that he had an album out, and that it sounded so good, but there were mutterings that it was overproduced with some unnecessary augmentation. They'd heard the song solo and felt that many already sounded complete in that form. It's interesting to note that Phil Spector would attract criticism the following year for his overproduction of the Beatles' Let It Be album and George Harrison's first solo effort, All Things Must Pass. The album sold around 5,000 copies, obviously a disappointingly low number for all concerned. Nick did rather reluctantly do a few gigs to support it, including supporting Fairport Convention at the Royal Festival Hall in September 1969, and there was also a Radio 1 session for the John Peel show one month earlier. Curiously, the Peel session took place at Maida Vale Studios, just a few hundred yards from where the Beatles were making their final ever recordings as a band at EMI Studios on the now world-famous Abbey Road. So at that John Peel session, he was accompanied by Anthea Joseph, who seemed to be a good and very caring friend of his, and she was also a witch season. And Nick played cello song, Riverman, and a song called Time of No Reply, which would later be the title track of the unofficial fourth Nick Drake album. He did a very brief, I think interview would even be a generous word. John Peel asked him a couple of questions, and one telling quote was that Nick said that he was currently wasting my time in Cambridge. Around this time, Ireland's A&R manager was trying to rouse Nick to do some more promotion of his album, and he found him to be, these were not his words, but uh, a typical stoner. He would stay up until six, smoking and probably listening to music and playing the guitar, and um, seemed to fit at that time, you know, one image of a musician, which is someone who's very much a night owl and is quite disorganised. Regarding that gig at the Royal Festival Hall, there were... Mixed reports. Joe Boyd said it was fantastic. A couple of other of Nick's friends on this documentary where they were discussing him said that he played fantastic, played a blinder. But others said that, you know, a lot of the audience were not so uh, appreciative and receptive to him. And, you know, perhaps it is a valid criticism that it wasn't really the place for him, you know, a large hall to play this sort of very intimate, introspective music. Nick moved to London in late 1969 and Joe Boyd paid for and helped him organise a ground floor bedsit in Camden, North London, prior to which Nick had been dossing with friends while all the while composing songs. This flat was uh, 112 Haverstock Hill, which uh, Keith Morris, a photographer who did photo sessions for Nick for each of his three albums, he called it Spartan but not Squalid. But again, on one of these documentaries, one of the Island Records representatives saw it as... um, I don't know if he used the word squalid, but he said it was uh, in very, very bad condition and Nick was apparently not allowing daylight into it, was keeping the curtains drawn the whole day. Perhaps in return for Boyd's generosity, Nick allowed him to craft the next album's production around a full band whose rhythm section was based around the Fairport Convention duo of Dave Pegg and Dave Mattox on bass and drums respectively, along with Nick's acoustic rhythm guitar, which tended to be strummed rather than finger-picked. The recording took nine months and once again Robert Kirby was drafted in when Nick expressed dissatisfaction with the string arrangements to some of the songs. John Cale, formerly of the Velvet Underground, 
heard some of the songs in production and insisted on contributing to Fly and Northern Sky, two of the album's highlights. Tellingly, Cale described Nick at that time as a zombie, like he had no personality left. Kirby has been quoted as saying that Nick was smoking unbelievable amounts of cannabis at this time, which, along with his social discomfort and paranoia about his career, may have helped push him over the edge. However, the rehearsals with the band had apparently been enjoyed by all, and Nick still seemed able to record comfortably with others around. There is a suggestion that, um, since John Cale was a heroin user at that time, self-confessed, that he and Nick may have engaged in that, but that's really pure speculation. The album is certainly more upbeat sounding than the first one, and while Five Leaves Left's mood conveyed a certain idea of pastoral England with acoustic guitars and trees, Brighter Later's faster pace reflects a young man from a small town encountering life in London for the first time, with its tube trains, city clocks and traffic. Of Nick's three albums, this is probably the most divisive, with some including Joe Boyd considering it his masterpiece, but others struggling with the juxtaposition of Nick's laid-back vocal delivery with the rather funky, and at times even cocktail jazz, backing. It does seem like this was the album that was the most out of Nick's hands, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing. What is clear is that it was an attempt to further Nick's career with a commercial energetic record, and when this failed, it seemed to accelerate his descent. Of musical note are the top and tailing of the album with instrumentals that hold their own, the album opener being a short one called Introduction that evokes Five Leaves Left and almost acts as a brief musical summary of that album before the change of musical direction kicks in with the second song. The bass, drums, acoustic guitar rhythm section creates a pleasant groove throughout, especially on Hazy Jane 2, a song whose lyrics once again show a remarkable prescience this time in relation to the fast-paced, increasingly impersonal digital world of the 21st century that Nick, of course, would never live to see. Fly benefits greatly from John Cale's contributions on viola and harpsichord, and vocally Nick employs a neat trick of alternating rather desperate pleas in the high register with verses that take the melody down an octave and return to Nick's familiar calm delivery. Poor Boy features some wonderful keyboard work from South African pianist Chris McGregor and a mocking female chorus including the voice of Doris Troy, an idea taken from Leonard Cohen's So Long Marianne. Northern Sky is a beautiful ballad to an imaginary lover and features Kale on Celeste, piano and organ. The song was memorably used in the final sequence of the A Skin Too Few documentary over footage of Nick as a toddler playing on the beach and in the sea with his sister Gabrielle. As Five Leaves Left ended with a song called Saturday Sun, Brighter Later's closer is Sunday. Once again, here are a few lyrical highlights from the album. Hazy Jane 2. What will happen in the morning when the world it gets so crowded that you can't look out your window in the morning? And all the friends that you once knew are left behind. They kept you safe and so secure among the books and all the records of your lifetime. Let's sing a song for Hazy Jane. She's back again in my mind. If songs were lines in a conversation, the situation would be fine. At the chime of the city clock. Saddle up, kick your feet, ride the range of a London street. And at the chime of a city clock, put up your roadblock. Hang on to your crown, for a stone in a tin can is wealth to the city man who leaves his armour down. The games you play make people say you're either weird or lonely. Hazy Jane 1. Do you curse where you come from? Do you swear in the night? Will it mean much to you if I treat you right? Do you feel like a remnant of something that's past? Do you find things are moving just a little too fast? Try to be true, even if it's only in your hazy way. Hey, slow Jane, live your lie. Slow, slow, Jane, fly on by. Fly. Please give me a second grace. 
please give me a second face. I've fallen so far the first time around. Now I just sit on the ground in your way. Please tell me your second name. Please play me your second game. I've fallen so far of the people you are. I just need your star for a day. And the sea she will sigh, but she'll never deny. For it's really hard for the fly. Poor boy. Nobody knows how cold it grows. And nobody sees how shaky my knees. Nobody cares how steep my stairs. And nobody smiles if I cross their stiles. Oh, poor boy, so sorry for himself. Oh, poor boy, so worried for his health. You may say every day, where will he stay tonight? So worried for his life, so keen to take a wife. Northern Sky I never felt magic crazy as this. I never saw moons, knew the meaning of the sea. I never felt emotion in the palm of my hand, felt sweet breezes in the top of a tree. But now you're here, brighten my northern sky. It's been a long time that I've wandered through the people I've known. Would you love me through the winter? Would you love me till I'm dead? So in March 1970, there was a Radio 2 session organised by a friend of Nick's. And then he did do a short tour supporting Sandy Denny's Fotheringay. And we will get to some of the gigs later on. So we're going to break off at this point to go to my conversation with Kester Jones and Kester's wonderful demonstrations of Nick Drake's guitar style and uh, parts of some of his songs. So I hope you enjoy that and I'll be back later on in the podcast for the rest of this essay. All right, so we're going to take a break from my ramblings talking about Nick and we're going to have a little musical interlude and some discussion here. So very proud to introduce Kester Jones, singer, songwriter, guitarist, pianist, harmonica player, glockenspielist, zitherer. Oh, really? <laughs> Zither like it? Is that the correct word? Probably not, no. But uh, as we're English a, a teachers... Z- a zitherist. No, I'm using job suffixes. You'll know all about that because okay. you're an yeah, English yeah. teacher. Now, I was trying to think of some of the weird instruments we used to use when we recorded my songs in Madrid. Yeah, anyway, I think that was most of them. I'll think of some other ones later. Anyway, well, anyway hello. Welcome to the <laughs> podcast. Hello. Thanks. Um, I actually just realised uh, the other day that we have actually recorded an interview slash discussion before. Do you remember those interviews yeah. in 2015? Yeah, those ones, yeah, yeah. I'd almost completely forgotten about that. I should probably listen to those again. I saw it on um, on YouTube the other day, actually. I was with uh, a couple of friends and we were looking at... We were taking turns to search each each other's names on YouTube. And, uh, <laughs> right. That was one of the first things that came up with my name. We know you're also a boxer, aren't you? Yeah, apparently, yeah. yeah. I was quite pleased that it comes up with things for me before the boxer, because I think the boxer is quite famous. <laughs> yeah, you're like a du- you're a dark-skinned boxer in your spare time. Yeah. You kept that one quiet. Yeah, yeah. it's my, uh, my secondary job. Yeah, there is an Anthony Rotuno on YouTube, Anthony with an H. It's this muscle-bound guy <laughs> who just constantly puts videos of his family on there. But, uh, yeah. Did you yeah. listen to any of that interview? Not recently, but no, at, no. at the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, I was yeah. using very amateur recording. I've learned a few things since then. Yeah, we were in that cafe that had that really noisy coffee machine or yeah, something. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think at the time I was Funny. sort of thinking it sounded organic, but probably just sounded annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just every yeah. minute or so. <laughs> yeah, they were quite bizarre. Every, everyone seemed to distance themselves from them instantly. I think Porig was the only one who shared them on any of his. Maybe you did as well, but... Everybody I else seemed to want yeah. to forget about them as soon as possible. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, I, I, I liked it. And I, my, uh, my mum liked it as well, so that's, uh, that's nice. That's good. Yeah. Okay, a few perfunctory questions and then we'll get to the okay. music. So when did you first hear about Nick Drake and what were your first impressions? 
the first time I heard Nick Drake was actually was when I was at university. I remember it really clearly, actually. Mm. Well, I remember parts of it clearly. The rest of it's quite hazy. I'm impressed you can remember anything about university clearly. But anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> so it was. I was at a friend's house. We'd had quite a, a big night out, and it was seven o'clock in the morning or something. Mm. And my friend put on. Um, I think it was the compilation album, an introduction to Nick Drake, Way to Blue, I think it was called. Yeah, Way to Blue, yeah, that's right. Um, the first song on that was Cello Song. We were sitting there, we were drinking tea actually, we were being quite civilised, surprisingly. But yeah, he put this on and I first heard the guitar and I was like, what's that? Mm. <laughs> I'd never heard it before. Mm. And he said, oh, it's this guy called Nick Drake. And I was convinced that it was two guitars as well. And he said, no, no, it's just one guitar. And then I made him go back to the beginning and listen to it again. And then I think the second song was um, Hazy Jane. Hazy Jane 1. Hazy Jane 1, right. Okay. And yeah, I loved that as well. And then we kept the album on. I think we listened to that album about three times in a row before people finally went home. And that was my (laughs) first introduction to Nick Drake. (laughs) Um, Interesting you said about seven in the morning because I was saying to you off mic, the only bit of audio we have of Nick Drake talking... It's about two minutes, and I think it's about 1968 yeah. or something, about a year before he recorded. And uh, you know how, like, when you're drunk, it can emphasise your accent. So if, like, a Cockney gets drunk, they suddenly sound like really Cockney. Nick Drake was obviously quite posh, and he just sounds even posher. He's like, he's like oh, yes, I've had a wonderful evening, uh, but one did get rather... I don't know if he uses the word squiffy. He probably didn't, but... Squiffy. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't and, be surprised. Uh, I think one has spent a lot of time in France because I started driving home on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> anyway. Um, good evening. Or should I say good morning? The time is 25 to 5. I've been sitting here for some time, actually. In this room, I have a party. Which I quite enjoyed, but yeah, it's, it, one has one's reservations. One has quite enjoyed oneself, but, but one has to make reservations because um, the people are particularly interesting. In fact, the, there weren't as many people as I, ex- I expected there to be because I thought, you know, the Maynard Mitchells have, uh, have a big, big do. And it, in fact, there weren't nearly as many as one might have thought. Which, which, was, which was a pity. In fact, I, I think I must have drunk rather a lot, although I didn't see this at the time. I, I, I thought myself quite sober. When I leapt into the car to drive home, after after my, my memory abandoned, I, I found the task extremely difficult. And it was extremely fortunate that um, there was nothing else on the road, because looking back on it, I seem to remember I had a a mental um, brainstorm that I didn't realise at the time, and I think I drove the whole way home on the right-hand side of the road. This is something, of course, which comes from um, driving in France too much, which is what, I, what, what, what I've been doing recently, as, as you probably know. Moments of stress, such as was this journey home, one forgets so easily the lies, the truth, and the pain. But still, I'm, I'm wavering from the point what I was trying to say is, um, when I sat here, I, I had an extremely pleasant time on the, on the piano, actually. I was playing the piano and, and sort of singing. And I, 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 I rather fear I, I might have kept people awake upstairs. One, one hopes not. But 
it, it, it was pleasant, and, and it's extremely pleasant sitting here now because I think there's something extraordinarily nice about seeing the dawn up before one goes to bed because there's something uncanny about it when it suddenly becomes light because one connects darkness with going to bed, surely, um, and, and when one is still up, it becomes light. And it's a new day, and you still haven't gone to bed to sleep because the night equals sleep so easily. And when one is still up, when the new day begins, it, it is something of an intriguing experience I always find. Uh, anyway, I think I'm straying from the point, and I, I shall probably stop talking here because um, if I don't, I shall start sort of relating sort of life histories and things, which will be very tedious. So it's here with that, and I'll sort of say good night, you know, good night. <laughs> Etc. Oh, yeah, it's so quite like the royal family. Yeah, the actual well, royal family, not the TV series. All oh, right. Yeah. Well, in this, uh, <laughs> I started reading a second biography, "Darker Than the Deepest Sea." Yeah, I haven't read the that darkest one. Sea. One of those. I'll have to try and get yeah. it and read it. Yeah, they describe him as sounding like a minor royal, which is quite funny. But uh, <laughs> is that book worth getting? Has it got a lot of extra information? Definitely, because he had an extra okay. ten years. It's 10 yeah. years after the first one, and he very cleverly doesn't really repeat because the Patrick Humphreys one, the one that you've read, Nick Jacob biography, which I used yeah, yeah. most of for the blog post, that's very comprehensive. So this guy, what he does, it's a shorter book, so he kind of mops up all the bits that weren't covered in the other book. Sadly, okay. I'll actually, try and get hold of it. Yeah, you should. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a very quick read as well. It's interesting he had a compilation because obviously compilations serve a purpose, but with Nick Drake, what's amazing is that the three albums are so distinct, aren't they? Like the first one's got some yeah. augmentation. The second one's very clearly an attempt at like a commercial pop album. Then the third one's stripped down. So have you got a favourite or do you consider them, as I said on that podcast, um, like three children, aren't they? I mean, yeah, they're all they're all different. But no, I, I don't have a favourite. It's impossible to choose yeah. a favourite, one of them really. They're all equally indispensable, I think. Ah. But yeah, I mean, after after that first introduction that I was saying about before, my friend, he lent me the CD to take home and I listened to it to the next few days. And then a week after I went out and bought all of the uh, the three albums and yeah. the um, the one that was released after he died. I think well, it has two different names. One of them is Time of No Reply and there's another one, uh, Made to Love Magic, I think. They released them at different times with some different songs. Those four or five songs that weren't released, the ones he did later on. Yeah, because what happened was Time of No Reply was actually considered an unofficial fourth album. Yeah. It's those four songs that he made a few months before he died. And then there's one called Mayfair they found, which is quite good. Joey. Yeah, Joey. So they came out on... Um, I think I have the other one, but I've, I've got... Well, I've got all of them, but... Was it Made to Love Magic, that one? Uh, I can't remember. Originally, it was Time of No Reply. And then Made to Love Magic is a few new songs. Yeah. new, as in newly discovered. And then different mixes of of those same ones and time and no reply so i think it is two separate releases but there's quite a lot of crossover yeah weirdly time of no reply was a song that he actually gigged and he played it on the john peel session but decided not to put it on any of his albums i don't know why he recorded it in the sessions for um five leaves left i believe yeah he did yeah but yeah i don't know why it wasn't put out because it's well it's a really good song there's nothing wrong with yeah. it at all absolutely yeah, it's curious yeah. yeah and then like what's amazing is that I would say there's, he's not particularly emotional on his songs, or it's a sort of, the first album's a sort of poetic, tragic thing, but it's not necessarily to do with his life. It's more like channeling the poets. Yeah. But then when you get to something like Black Eyed Dog and uh, Hanging on a Star, I mean, Hanging on a Star is almost like a song to Joe Boyd, because Joe Boyd went off to America and essentially right. sort of left him. He was like this father figure who deserted him. 
And he was sort of everything Nick Drake wanted to be because he was very sort of socially comfortable and things. Yeah. Because Nick Drake had decided to make Pink Moon stripped down, so Joe Boyd basically wasn't needed, and he got a really good job offer from Warner Brothers and left to America, but then I think Nick Drake felt like Daddy had... <laughs> Daddy. Felt Daddy. abandoned. <laughs> Daddy, come back. It was one of those, yeah. <laughs> Don't we... leave me, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so when you said when you first heard Nick Drake, you were like, wow, what's that? At that point, like I, I played acoustic guitar a little, but my acoustic guitar playing was basically just strumming open chords. I played a lot more electric guitar. My sort of wannabe Jimi Hendrix licks and things. But yeah, I didn't really play acoustic guitar at that point. And my, my finger picking was, was non-existent. Oh, okay. And so basically, I mean, I, I learned to play acoustic guitar from listening to those main three albums, really. Oh, right, um, okay. And then after that, I found other guitarists, other things that Nick Drake was clearly influenced by and, and different picking styles and stuff. But yeah, anyway. So what's going to say was, does he have a signature, uh, a signature style? Because some of those people, those, some of those names would be Bert Yanch, Davy Graham, John Martin, John Renborn, those kind of people. Does he fit into that style or is there something unique? There are similarities, obviously. But yeah, I'd say, I'd say he does have a unique style. Mm. In my mind, Bert Jansch and John Remborn, they're more deeply rooted in like the folk tradition and traditional okay. English folk songs and things. Davy Graham also, but obviously he did some more kind of blues things as well. Hmm. But yeah, I think the main difference with that, I've, I don't know if this is really true, but in my mind, I feel that for those guitarists, the main focus of their songs is the guitar. Okay. And with Nick Drake's songs, the the main focus is the song. So like the guitar is kind of a vehicle for the song. You can see that in his picking style as well. So he's not doing so many intricate things on like the high strings so much. Mm. He's more doing counterpoint things to his vocal melodies. So it's obviously from the same kind of tradition, but I'd say it's more song based in my in my opinion. Um, yeah, and I similar th- with John Martin because they both started at a similar time. They're kind of uh, contemporaries of the other more traditional folk guys. I think they were quite close as well. I think when Nick Drake started yeah. to go downhill, which are more and more, to be honest, I'm sad to say this, but from this book, it seems more and more that it was to do with drugs, oh, really? including heroin, especially mixed with prescription drugs, because he was prescribed right. anyway. But John Martin was quite close to him. The album Solid Air, yeah. the song Solid Air is actually about Nick Drake or dedicated to Nick yeah, Drake. yeah. But I think what people say about Nick Drake, and there's some great interviews with people who were at Cambridge with him, they said they couldn't believe how strong it sounded and how fluent. And apparently, if he ever, like, missed a take or whatever and he was recording, he could do the same thing almost perfectly every single time. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, those first, the main three albums, when he recorded them, he was playing and singing at the same time. Yeah. I don't think he overdubbed the four songs that were released after he died. Apparently those ones, he recorded the vocals separately because he wasn't quite up to doing everything together. Yeah, he was literally too traumatised. He was in such a yeah. state. That's the only reason he couldn't, but ordinarily he could. Yeah, but yeah. I think, yeah, he was, as far as I know, like he was very consistent with his playing and singing. I think with some of those patterns, you have to be consistent. If you miss a beat on some of them, they kind of fall apart. The momentum has to carry it on. 
yeah. the kind of perpetual motion thing. I think maybe one of the advantages of being an introvert, I think he was a serious introvert, and then drugs and everything and the pressures of fame just sort of made him go more and more in on himself. But I think, the, I think those introverts, you can imagine him just sitting for hours and hours and hours, just playing and playing and playing, you know, because he was, yeah, he was just... quite socially awkward and probably spent a lot of time in his room, you know. Um, yeah, I imagine. Well, there's all those home recordings as well, which came out on um, Family Tree. Yeah, Family Tree's which, good. Uh, yeah, I really like that. I mean, it's obviously it's not the same as the, the three main albums, but I think the nice thing on that is you can basically hear his influences as well because yeah. he's doing lots of covers and you can hear that he was influenced by blues and folk and country and a couple of kind of jazz things as well. A combination of different things. He sounds nice and relaxed as well, and you, you can hear him just playing for himself, I think, because he, obviously he didn't intend people to hear them, really. Yeah, I think that one, Family Tree, was sanctioned by Gabrielle, his sister, and, and the, and the yeah. family, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of blues. So is there actually any blues in his original songs, would you say, musically? Are there bluesy notes? That's, that's a good point, actually. Not especially. I mean, he has, like, mm. sevenths and things like that, but... I don't know if there's bluesy notes in any of them especially. I suppose like Brighter Later has got more kind of, it's got jazzy things in it, but that's more the other instruments maybe rather than Yeah. I can't think of a specific one that I'd say is like a bluesy song. It's interesting, isn't Um, it? Because a lot of his Cambridge friends, they said that when he used to bust out the guitar and jam, you know, around campfires or wherever it was, university parties, he would invariably go to blues. And then he also played a lot of Billie Holiday on the guitar. I don't know how exactly that works, but... Yeah, okay. he had the jazz leanings, I think, from his family. You must have heard some of his mother's songs. Yeah, some of them, That was yeah. quite strange, isn't it, to hear? I don't think they're similar, but I think there's a slight sort of tragic quality in some of her songs. They're quite wistful and they're quite... Yeah, I th- and they sing with the same kind of accent as well, don't they? And yeah. So they're, they're, there are some similarities. I suppose yeah. his own songs, there's the one on um, uh, Made to Love Magic, um, was it, Mayfair, that's kind of a more sort of jazzy type of song it's not blues but it's more yeah jazzy it's one of his more jazzy ones Paul ironically it's quite quite jazzy some of it but that's mostly the saxophone and the piano actually though anyway yeah i mean that rhythm section on brighter later is basically yeah. fairport conventions rhythm bloody good dave maddox and dave peg yeah yeah i'm not so keen on some of the flute but the rest of it i really like <laughs> yeah just very generally do you think on five leaves left because we did do a deep dive recently on that podcast do you think yeah. some of the adornments were a bit for the sake of it? I mean, obviously, I think Robert Kirby's fairly solid, but do you think some of the other stuff was almost for the sake of adding to it? Which things? Uh, I mean, the string arrangements are, are really good, I think, on that. Oh, yeah, I think they add, they add a lot yeah. to those songs. Definitely. Uh, there's a couple where those congas just seem a bit... I kind of like them, actually. Do you it like gives, them, yeah. um, on uh, three hours, for example, yeah, it gives it this more uh, slightly more sort of menacing, insistent sound. I think, mm. and it's on. It's their own cello song as well, aren't they? I think they go on that. Well, I think it makes sense. I don't feel like they're unnecessary. Right, um, right. And then there was, I had a disagreement, very friendly disagreement with the uh, Morris who did that podcast. Yeah, I was saying that maybe I'm sort of conditioned by rock to feel that bass needs drums, and that when you have double bass on its own, it. C- it sounds a little bit empty, but I mean, obviously the guy is a great uh, player, Danny Thompson. He's a brilliant bass player, but I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I think the thing you were saying about ba- about bass and drums with electric mm. bass—that's definitely true. Oh, electric okay. bass without drums sounds weird, but double bass without drums is—I mean, a lot of the early Elvis recordings, 
was uh, Elvis, Scotty Moore, and uh, the bass player. Uh, yeah, Bill, Bill Black. Black. There's yeah. no drums on those the first handful of Elvis recordings. Oh, that's interesting. Um, is there someone like tapping away, or is there literally no percussion? I, th- I think the percussion sound is, is from the acoustic guitar from Elvis uh, drumming, and and I think he does. The, um, I, c- I can't remember what the technique is called. The slapping. So you play a note and then you slap the strings. Uh, okay, right. It's very very common in rockabilly kind of stuff. But I think because uh, the bass playing on Five Leaves Left, it's quite kind of jazzy. I think it's it's okay without the drums to me anyway. It doesn't mm. sound weird. Okay. Yeah, I still haven't found anyone to agree with me about that. I'll, yeah. I'll keep working on people, don't worry. <laughs> I'm trying to th- there must be something. Some of the piano, maybe? No, I like the piano as well. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, I, yeah, I, I don't completely agree with that. Don't worry, no problem. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay, let's, we have to talk about the tunings because uh, yeah, okay. Nick Drake is so synonymous with tunings. Just for people who don't know, so the standard tuning is E-A-D-G-B-E. And the only really ones that I'd ever heard of really was Open G popularized by keith richards late 60s stones dad yeah. gad and then our friend porig uses open d quite a lot well open d open e they're like typical kind of blues like especially for slide guitar open oh yeah because that works e, with the slide yeah, a, that makes sense. yeah dad gad would be back to davy graham who we spoke about briefly before he okay. used dad gad a lot okay um, so before you actually demonstrate let me just say do you think all the tunings, do they all add something? Or again, is it sort of an indulgence or is it something ex- just experimental for the sake of being experimental, do you reckon? I don't think it's an indulgence because I suppose when he was writing the songs, he was just playing them by himself. Yeah. And I think with the, the different tunings, you can get lots of kind of subtly different, well, lots of subtle differences. So you can have like um, an interval of a second on different strings, which you wouldn't normally have. I think a, a lot of it as well is like his actual left hand finger patterns aren't really very complicated. Right. Most of his songs only have a few chords. So I think it was finding ways of having a different tonality and being able to play things with, uh, with different notes that ring out. Because open strings are very important for a lot of his songs. Yeah. But like, for example, if you try and play some of his songs in standard tuning, they just don't work. Yeah, so I think only... I think it's kind of essential for a lot of them. Although there are, it's it's kind of interesting though. There's a, there's there is some debate about which tunings he actually used for some of the songs. Hmm. For example, with uh, with Riverman, because after I first got into Nick Drake, I bought a um, a songbook. I think just Nick Drake songbook or something. I remember the days you actually go to a music shop and buy a, a book yeah. with it. Now, well, tell, tell now me the songs because the I, internet. Tell me the songs because I can tell you what this biography says. Because it, it seems quite comprehensive. So in this in the, this first songbook I got, it said Riverman was in uh, CGC FCE, which is one of the it's one that he uses quite a lot. But then okay. actually Riverman is in standard tuning apparently. Wow! Um, Did you say CGC FCE? Yeah. Yeah, that's what it's got in this book. So for Riverman. Yeah. But then I've seen other other people it. saying that that they're convinced it was in standard tuning. Mm. Right. You can play it in both, and it sounds fine in both of them. It has yeah. a slightly different... In the, the dropped tuning in C, it sounds a bit deeper, obviously. But, um, but yes, it's inter- there is some debate about some of them. I think Northern Sky as well. There's some, uh, I've seen some different tunings for that. Uh, one option is where it's like B, E, B, E, B, E. But there's another one that I've seen which is in some form of open D as well. What I've got here is D, A, D, G, D, G. Yeah, so it's like some kind of 
variation on like a D tuning. Otherwise known as Dad Gudugger. Yeah, doesn't quite work, does <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, that uh, famous Dad Gudugger. <laughs> but it's famous from this moment. Yeah, but I've seen other things that say it's B-E-B-E-B-E for Northern Sky. Wow. So there and is a lot of debate about it, it seems. Anyway. Well, there are a couple of songs actually where it only uses a few strings. I think Black Eyed Dog is on about three strings, apparently. Yeah. I think that's um, Open G, that one. Okay. The interesting thing is that he doesn't have many songs that use the traditional open tunings, that use Open oh, G okay. or Open D. A lot of them are variations on different things. I think Black Eyed Dog and... I can't remember which one. There's another one of those four that were released after his death. Yeah. There's two in Open G. I don't know if there's one in Open D or if they're just variations of an Open D kind of thing. It's curious. He seemed to stay away from the uh, the standard open tunings. Yeah, um, I so feel may- like... He... Maybe he was searching for a different sound in that respect. I don't know. I think it was all quite sort of instinctive in a weird way. Yeah. Because, of course, one, be, of, yeah. one of the problems he had, you probably know about this thing about him gigging or lack of gigging. It actually turns out yeah. he probably did about 25 or 30 concerts in his life. Oh, really? That's, but that's the, more than I thought, actually. Yeah, more than I thought as well until I read that uh, one of those two books. But yeah, yeah he, did, he did do quite a few and he actually went up, to, he went up to the north, for example. He did one in Hull, did one in Liverpool. wonder what they thought of him there with his posh royal family voice. <laughs> yeah, well, they might be in a bit of prejudice. Well, the thing is, they probably never heard his voice because he literally probably never not, talked no. to the audience ever. But they yeah. might have heard, seen him in the bar going, oh, yes, I'm going to play this. And, but I think he, he got really traumatised because he'd go to university, sort of boozy university parties when they, they want to hear, like, Daydream Believer or something, like, something they can <laughs> sing along to. Beatles songs. and Yeah. yeah they like, get these very introspective, give yeah. us something to sing, mate. And he's like, a river man, have you seen yeah. a river man? And they're like... Um, can you do Honky Tonk Women? Yeah, yeah. I guess that wasn't out at that point, but that kind of... Yeah, thing. well, it might have been, yeah, it might have been. Yeah, and one of the problems was because, obviously, even though he came from a sort of moneyed family, he didn't turn up with loads of guitars all tuned differently. So also he'd spend yeah. loads of time tuning and everyone's like, oh, yeah, come on, mate, get on with it. You know? Yeah, I've, I read something about that. Like his, uh, his live shows were a bit of a, a kind of a torturous event for the audience. Yeah. For everyone, really. So he was just really. endlessly yeah. tuning his guitar and retuning it. and <laughs> Yeah. But, like, he wouldn't talk to them while he's doing it. Someone who's quite extrovert would be saying, uh, yeah. right, just going to tune the guitar and then tell them a story or something. But he had nothing. It, do you think it's true that he often performed... Well, I say often, like, on the, those few times when he performed live. Do you think it's mm. true that he had his back to the audience as well? Yeah, I, I think I'm that might sure. be a bit of a myth. Because yeah. there's that myth about Stuart Sutcliffe in the Beatles, wasn't it? I, I'm not even sure. There's actually one picture of Stuart Sutcliffe with his back. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. I think he was more. He'd more be hunched, like kind of hunched over the guitar. Absolutely, just with really... his hair covering his face. I imagine. Yeah, because I likened it to he played live as if he was in a recording studio. So he's right next right. to the mic, so it picks it up well. But he's got yeah. his head down. There's no almost imagine... like he's unaware that's whatever's going on. I imagine him being a bit like, um, you know, the uh, the Neil Young Unplugged, MTV Unplugged video. Yeah. Where he's, he's hunched over the guitar quite a lot with, the, with his hair over his face. Yeah. I imagine him being a bit like that, actually. Well, there's another one that Neil Young did in London, I think, 1971. There's only about five yeah. songs. I mean, the music is just fantastic, but he's very introverted. So the, the only ones I found in standard tuning, my version of Way to Blue that we're going to hear was actually based on the piano demo in Family Tree. So... 
the chords yeah. there are actually fairly standard. Are there any other ones that he did in standard tuning? Is it a handful? There's a surprising number, actually, yeah. There's a few from, oh. um, especially on the first album. I'm trying to think. Time has told me, I think. Well, that was another one where I first learnt it in open C, but apparently that's in standard tuning as well. Okay. I've got here and, um, C, G, C, F, C, E, yeah. I don't yeah, know. that's yeah. what I thought it was. But then, the, yeah, there's you can play it in standard tuning and it sounds more or less like the recorded version as mm. well. Okay. And then there's other ones on that album in standard tuning. Just let me check my... Uh, my that's notes. all right. While you're doing that, I'll just say Poor Boy, I think, is in standard as well. Yeah, I think that's Apparently. in standard. Yeah. So yeah, here I've got a list of the ones that they say are in standard tuning here. This is from okay. a, uh, a website called nickhealy.com, Nick Drake Tunings. So Time Has Told Me, River Man, Day Is Done, apparently standard tuning. Okay. Poor Boy, Things Behind The Sun, that's an obvious one. That's one of the first ones I tried to learn, basically, because I, it meant I didn't have to retune the guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Joey, Mayfair. And then there's some other ones that I haven't heard of, actually. Rain, Blossom, have you heard them? I've heard of Blossom. I think Rain? they're sort of undeveloped jams because, yeah. I don't know if I was saying this earlier, but his sister actually got really annoyed because Family Tree was sanctioned. But what would yeah. happen is in the years before he became like really famous, you know, sort of around the 80s, he, people started to hear his name, you know, obviously long after he died, unfortunately. And people would turn up at the house and Rodney Drake, his father, would give them compilations. Yeah. And then years later, they'd put them on the internet. So some of them are not, there's one that's not great, but yeah, there's a few sort of, yeah, there's a few. I think I've heard the name Blossom, but anyway. Yeah, maybe it's on mm. Family Tree. Someone on YouTube's about an hour and a half, which is quite amazing. Yeah. An hour and a half of ones I hadn't heard, which aren't all great, but they're just, oh, really? sort, of, okay. they just sort of got curiosity. Yeah, I'll send it to you after. Yeah, that'd be good. I'd like to hear that. And then we get to these very bizarre ones, which, <laughs> joking aside, I think the fact that he was losing the plot getting very depressed may have it may be a, a form of madness the song which will from pink moon great song yeah. is apparently in b f sharp b e d d sharp or d sharp or e flat I, th I think it's just the same as c g c f c e but but down a semitone so maybe maybe that yeah. wasn't on purpose because there are some songs especially the ones that he did by himself where the tuning it's not exactly concert pitch it's kind of between two keys because ah, okay. obviously he was just tuning the guitar to itself because if there weren't any other instruments he didn't need to worry about tuning oh, I see, it yeah. to yeah. any specific thing so maybe he just tuned it down by mistake i don't know so he would tune down to b rather than up to b would he yeah oh yeah because yeah. tuning up he'd probably break the string wouldn't he yeah i mean if you take something like uh the end by the doors they've got yeah. the low and the high e's tuned down to d and it gets yeah. this lovely, like, when you play the opening chord at the end, it sounds very satisfying with the yeah, two Ds. I think it's the same tuning on um, Cinnamon Girl as well by Neil Young. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's got these kind of droning strings through it. Yeah, the, oh, that's the other thing is the drone, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, how about this one? Hanging on a star, apparently yeah. is A-A-D-A-A-C sharp, which is, I guess it's sort of almost A-A-D-A-A-C sharp, almost open a but with the e down to a d yes a second a add a add four a add i don't four, know how yeah. musical the people uh listening or watching this will be i mean if you understand that then it's, it's basically the fourth degree of a scale which n it wouldn't normally be in a chord but it gives some kind of interesting overtones 
Yeah, so for the non-musicians listening, I suppose what we're saying is that when you tune lots of strings to the same note, so in that one you'd have four strings, you just get a very open or droney. The drone, again, for people who don't know, is like a low sound that continues through the song. So Indian music, or in fact, Within You, Without You, the song on Sgt. Pepper, it just is all on one chord. Yeah, it has this sort of hypnotic effect, and I think Nick Drake's songs are definitely quite hypnotic, aren't they? Yeah, I mean that's part of, I think part of his style as well. Maybe maybe that's another difference uh, between him and um, people like Bert Jansch and mm. John Renborn. He relied more on drone notes going through mm. the songs because there's lots of them where he's only actually changing one or two notes, and the rest of them are, um, are staying the same. And those one or two notes that he changes, it basically gives the chords a whole different quality. Oh, interesting. So I wonder um, if he heard some Indian music. I mean, he, maybe. he must have known the Beatles went to India, I suppose. I mean, he could not know that. I mean, I, I suppose it's partly just from having the uh, the different tunings as well. They mm. kind of lend themselves to having a low bass note going through them, all of them and then the chords changing on top. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to it. So you've heroically uh, tuned <laughs> three different guitars. So thanks yeah. for doing that. Tuned to three different tunings. So... The song we're actually going to hear that yourself and your partner, Melanie, uh, recorded is Cello's song. Is that the tuning you've got there? No. (laughs) Oh, okay. Oh, no problem, no problem. So just um, tell us the tuning you've got there and just give us a demo of the song. This guitar that I'm holding at the moment is Mm. tuned to B. Okay. E. B. E. B. E. Okay. So it's only actually two notes across the whole guitar. Okay. And so, like, this would be common for... Uh, just let me change my notes. If you think of um, Chime of a City Clock, for example. Okay, it's from Brighter Later, isn't it? Yeah. This is the problem with uh, when you have the guitar tuned down so low, it's very hard to keep it in tune. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you put a couple on as well. Perfect. So the thing I was saying about the drone, for example, could be like like this... Like a really important part of what he did was uh, like the thumb is really important to keep that momentum going. Yeah. And then the chords that change on the top. So for Chime River City Clock, it would be a. Uh... And if you can see my hand, it's the same shape, just moving down a semitone. Uh, okay. So the so actual of the... left hand is. It's not doing anything especially complicated, really. It's one shape that just moved down. I think that was a very common thing in lots of his songs as well, but he had the, um, in the guitar, he had these kind of uh, descending lines on the middle strings a lot. So a drone on the bass string, descending wow. lines on the middle strings. And then sometimes like open strings on the top for like a ringing kind of sound. Because that's interesting, because in sort of 60s pop, like Beatles, etc., the trend was for the chord to stay the same and the bass to go down, was it? Like Dear Prudence. Yeah. That's interesting he did the opposite. Was anyone doing that before, or do you think that's maybe something he invented? I I don't know if he invented it, but it's definitely Mm. one of his uh, kind of signature... It's a signature part of his sound, I think. Wow, cool. Rather than, like, the other guitarists we spoke about, Bert Jansch, Davy Graham, John Renborn, I think they did more like, um, or more like, if I, I'll, I'll change to the, the normal tuned guitar. Okay. Like, with finger-picking, like, kind of, like, blues or blues country sort of finger-picking, 
Travis picking. I, I don't know what the names are really. I doing call it Travis be, picking. Yeah. Like you have the thumb doing. Uh, if you think of, uh, do you know Freight Train? That song by uh, Elizabeth Cotton. Oh yeah, which, uh, yeah. If people haven't heard that, I definitely re- recommend looking for a video of that. I think mm. she's about 80 or 90 years old and she's playing this song. She's left-handed as well. Yeah. It's a song that she wrote when she was 11 or something. Oh, wow. So the bass does this. And then you have like a melody on the high strings, which would be a... That's kind of like more of a typical way of doing things, I think. But then if you think of Nick Drake, you'd have like, um, so we saw Time of a City Clock before. Man in a Shed, for example. So the, the, the things that he plays on the, on the top strings, they're not, they're not a melody. It's just, he has this kind of descending thing again, which, I, as I said before, I think is kind of a trademark of his. And then the open strings, the, the high strings are just open, just ringing against the uh, the tonality of the bottom strings that move. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> that is a bit of blues, isn't it? Yeah. A, a bluesy bit. bend there. S- yeah. Slight bluesy bend, yeah. Yeah. But again, it's like just like two fingers in this hand, basically. Wow, that sounds fantastic. So the actual chord shapes, uh, this hand is fairly straightforward. Mm. The real difficult thing is in is in the uh, the right hand for a lot of his things. So yeah, so if we go from the verse pattern, it's basically like uh, like this. Didn't play it quite right, but you get the idea. Yeah, I can so, really like, hear that. Not I so can much, hear that drone. So there's not so much melody going on, and like in the, in the high strings, the high strings are more kind of ringing, and um, I suppose the ringing sound of them is kind of a high drone, and then there's a low drone, and then the movement is just kind of in the mid range, like a, as I was saying earlier, like a counterpoint to his melody, like mm. his vocal melody. I mean, I'm trying to think of other examples. Do you want any other examples? Well, just before you do that. I was just thinking the very last song that we recorded, that Rose of Empty Chairs, I, yeah. I suddenly had the idea of having a high drone instead of a low drone. So that's something that, again, I haven't really heard of because we always think of a drone as low, don't we? But that's interesting. No, carry yeah. on. If you can just give us a couple more, that'd be lovely. Another one in this would be um, From the Morning. Is this tuning? Oh, I love From the Morning. Fantastic. Let me see if I can... So the actual chords is playing are these... And this this chord is a is a very typical Nick Drake chord as well. Yeah. The sound you hear it all in loads of things. I'll change guitars in a moment. You can hear it on um, okay. like Hazy Jane and uh, or Which Will a place to be or something. But yeah, this is like so you have the drone, which is uh, this. Oh yeah. So that's going all the way through, and then you have. Um, oh, lovely. 
Thank you. Wow. I think the guitar's gone slightly out of tune. That's all right. Yeah. No, we got it. And on the right hand, yeah. just very generally, can you give it? It sounds like you're sort of finger picking and almost strumming at the same time. A little bit, but that's, I mean, it's more just um, to do it, I suppose, because I'm not really playing it properly. That's why, that's why oh, it right. sounds like that. <laughs> okay. I mean, really, I think I think he was very precise with his picking on the ones where he was mm. picking. There's somewhere he was uh, just strumming as well, though. But um, let me see. I, don't I feel know like the I second can... album was a bit more strummed because it was more of a rock, yeah, pop I think rock album. I think because there were more instruments on it, he didn't need to um, focus so much on the guitar. Was that Northern Sky? What? No, that, no. That That's chord just, you that, just played. Ah. So this is the other tuning that a lot of his songs are in. One of his favourite ones. This tuning, it, you can play anything and it basically sounds like Nick Drake, really. Yeah. It's that sounded very, a lot like Northern Sky. But it's not exactly that, is it? No, not exactly. Northern, apparently Northern Sky was in the other tuning. Or that ah, other okay. one you said before, the D-A-D something. But yeah, like this, uh, this sound. Uh, that chord, it's in a lot of his songs. It's basically yeah. playing like a minor second, kind of ambiguous minor second chord instead of the five chord. For non-musical listeners, the five mm-hmm. chord would normally go back to the um, the one chord. But he played a minor chord on the, the second degree of the scale instead. It's in a lot of his songs. But yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you recognise this one, for example. Yeah. You can sing if you feel like it. I need to concentrate on <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. Well, that was, that's yeah, the other that's... thing I was going to mention. When you did a cello song, you were telling me yeah, it's really yeah. hard to play his yeah. stuff and sing at the same time. So that's another of his achievements. Yeah, I don't know how he did that because another thing with with a lot of his a lot of his songs is that the the guitar is so precise, metronomic, I suppose you could say. Yeah. And then so he's doing this really precise picking, completely on the beat, but then his singing is completely off the beat. It just kind wow. of floats across the top of it, almost with no regard for the rhythm sometimes. And so I think that's partly why it's really hard to try to to do versions of his songs because yeah. on the one hand you have the picking which it takes a long time to get to. You, you kind of have to practice it until you don't have to think about it, I think. Mm. And then trying to sing across the top of it, it's, it's really complicated. People don't talk about his singing so much either, but his singing was always impeccable as well. It's always yeah. perfectly, perfectly in tune. I don't know if he had perfect pitch or something. Or, like, you never hear him sing sharp or flat. I think he might have had perfect pitch, actually. I think someone yeah. said that. Right, people don't talk about it. It's just a lovely sort of floaty... How can we describe his voice? Very wistful. Yeah, floaty would describe it. Airy. Yeah. There's obviously a huge difference between Five Leave Left and Pink Moon. His voice sounds harder on Pink Moon. Like, obviously, he's had two or three years of probably self-abusing a lot and this sort of depression and and things. Yeah. A bit more weary, maybe, in some ways. Yeah, the sort of voice of experience. Because on this podcast we did, we were saying really the first album, it's not that it's inauthentic, it's very authentic to him, but he's channeling the poet. He's sort of talking about tragedy, but he hasn't really had any tragedy in his life. Yeah. You know? But by the end, it's... I kind of like Pink Moon, because I feel like... I don't want to pick a favourite either, really, but I think the songs on Pink Moon, I don't 
feel they need anything. Maybe it's because I've heard them without anything for years. It could be that. I mean, Pink Moon's yeah. got a bit of piano, isn't it? I think that's the only yeah, bit. Just a, just like a couple of notes. We were saying about the drones that go through the songs. I think on that album especially, there's a, they're more kind of droney sounding. Yeah. Maybe partly that's why they, they didn't really need other instruments as well. Yeah. For example, uh, the song Parasite. I don't know if I can play this. I'll see. Okay. Um, so this is another one in this the CGC FCE tuning. I was saying before about these like counterpoint lines and uh, droning strings. So the only note that moves in this song is this one. Well, F in this tuning, I suppose. And mm-hmm. it just does. That's all it does. And then there's another bit that does that. But most of the song is is that, just that one note that moves. While the other strings are doing, um, so you have this bass drone. goes through it doing that kind of pattern and then you also have at the same time so it's yeah. like four notes that are all the same wow. and then the part that moves is I'll do it slowly so you can hear it okay. and so I can play it <laughs> okay There's only one note that's, that's moving, and the other ones are all wow. the same. But the chord it gives this sense of movement between the chords, and it's and then that's kind of a, a platform for his melody to bounce off of as well. Wow. It's quite it's it's really interesting how little is actually moving in this hand, but it sounds really it sounds like it's a really full sound. It's, it's very it's, rich, yeah, 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 very full. That descending it's in loads of songs where you have uh, like the. Uh, So oh, the jazzy one. for me. <laughs> is that Nina Simone or is that? Yeah, but that's just, it's in loads of songs though. So yeah. I don't know if a descending thing is um, it's synonymous with his depression or anything. Yeah. Before we finish, I wanted to ask you, do you think his songs actually sound sad? Because they, a lot of people say they, li- they listen to Pink Moon and it's depressing, but I think maybe it sounds more depressing if, if you know his story. Does he actually um, use a lot of minor or not necessarily? Not on Pink Moon so much, no. Um, oh, that's interesting. I mean, things Behind the Sun is, is clearly minor. Yeah. I'd say there's probably more minor keys on the on the, the first album. You've got the songs like uh, like Fruit Tree and... Um, Way to Blue other? is in E minor, isn't it? Way yeah. to Blue is minor. Riverman is, well, Riverman's minor and then major. It's kind of, it kind of alternates. I think maybe they're minor because, like I said, he, he's sort of channeling this sort of poetic gloom even though he didn't yeah. have it in his real life. So that, that would make sense. Fruit tree, day is done. It's oh, day is very done, clearly right. minor. But I suppose three hours is minor. Way to okay. is minor. So I would say there are actually more minor songs on his first album. The songs on um, Pink Moon, we were saying before, there's more use of drone sounds. Yeah, They're more ambiguous, I would say, some of them. They're not exactly major or minor, I think, just because of like the, the tones from the open strings and things that he's using. But I find his stuff uplifting. I don't find it depressing at all, really. Yeah, I think, I think most of his... Go on, go on. Black Eyed Dog is... Oh, yeah, that's obviously quite... I mean, that's uh, not even on the albums, though, is it? That's a sort of... No, that no. would have been on a fourth album, I suppose. 
I, I suppose some of his, a lot of his lyrics are kind of wistful or melancholic. Yeah. But they're not just, they're not downright depressing, I wouldn't say. No. He's not blatantly talking about death and things like that. <laughs> I mean, actually, in Five Zero's Left, when we did this podcast recently, Love That Album, yeah. we did find a few, there's a few pointers to what happened later, but again, I don't know, because he said um, fame is like a fruit tree and he makes, gives the idea that yeah. people only appreciate you after you're dead. He does say that <laughs> sort of quite explicitly. but um, I, I suppose that would make... It would make more sense if it if it had been on the uh, the third album. Exactly. Because at that well, point, he hadn't experienced fame, and he didn't know that. Sadly, his records weren't really going to sell that well during his lifetime. Yeah, well, that's a sort of a Joe Boyd thing. I think that is sort of maybe reading too much, as if Nick was predicting the future. I, yeah, I can't buy that to be honest. No. I don't know. Have you got any theories just uh, before we go, like on what caused his descent? Do you think it's sort of fame, pressure, think- drugs, or just all of those things? I think a combination of those things, really. From what I gather, he was really disappointed that his albums didn't sell that well. Mm. I can't remember the exact figures, but, I mean, they were essentially uh, flops, I think, when they came out. They sold a little, but not not very much at all. I think they sold probably between three and 5,000, I'd imagine. Yeah. I think especially after Brighter Later, because that was the sound of it it was of it was clearly made to be kind of more of a pop sound or more of an accessible mm. sound and i think he um he really believed that that would sell well and he would become popular from that i mean maybe that's why he decided for for pink moon just to to do it by himself which may, maybe that's more in, in line with what he he wanted to do originally i don't know i'm mm. i'm speculating so I th- yeah i think his lack of success was one of the things obviously his long-lasting problems with depression and um, insomnia as well i think i think it sounds like he uh he was just really tired because he hadn't been able to sleep properly for ages and so he just Mm. took a bunch of sleeping tablets because he wanted to sleep that's what i gather again speculation it's impossible to say for certain yeah but yeah i think a, a combination of things i think he he wanted to be successful but then on the other hand he didn't really like performing so I suppose there were problems with that Mm. and then yeah we've spoken about his problems with depression insomnia just yeah I think the whole the combination of all of those things just kind of led to his downfall like I was saying this second biography does point more to heroin it seems actually I mean yeah I didn't know about that much before you know who knows what to believe but presumably this I'll take this guy at his word that he's researched it properly but does appear that he probably did it a few times and in a funny way it's uh it's quite moorish i suppose as moorish <laughs> that's a good word yeah. For it. yeah yeah but it's sadly predictable really because you get an introvert who's then is in pain and then you take the ultimate painkiller and it feels right you know and sad yeah it makes sense i mean i think at the time when he died he was actually uh he was at his parents' house, I think, to have a break from things and to cu- try to clean up his lifestyle a bit and that that kind of thing. So I suppose it does make yeah. it does make sense that maybe he was um, overdoing it with some things before that. Then, if you know this, uh, <laughs> he actually uh, tried to become a computer programmer. His dad got him a job, <laughs> yeah, working in an office. No, it's, just, it's so hard to believe. At all. <laughs> it's almost as hard to believe as like I know Jimi Hendrix doing data entry or something, you know. It just doesn't seem right somehow. (laughs) He even applied to join the army, amazingly enough, about a year before he died. Yeah, that was off his own back, apparently. That wasn't 
his family's that's, that's surprising from what i've read about him doesn't seem like he has the uh, the personality to be in the military at all yeah we I didn't suppose. like waking up early for a start yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i haven't read about him being in any fights or anything but i don't imagine him being especially uh aggressive and yeah he'd probably prefer to yeah. carry a guitar rather than a gun wouldn't he like, yeah, that was, that was that was his weapon of choice, so to speak. Try and pacify the uh, the enemy by playing Hazy Jane. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Here's a nice folk tune, everybody. Yeah. Stop fighting. Everyone, just yeah. just sit down. Smoke a joint. Relax. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Uh, would you like to just briefly give us one more before we close? Anything you want? Example or? Yeah, one more example. I was thinking, yeah, this one. This is more of a strumming one. Place to be. Maybe I could change the tuning while we're doing this. Oh yeah, this is a personal favourite of mine. Yeah, I really like this one. So you can't you can't play it in this tuning that I was in before, which is the C G C F C E. But apparently, th- this string is tuned down more. Okay. So I'll, I'll just show you because you were saying like, um, why does he use the different tunings? Mm-hmm. And part of it is because you do get a different tonality with the open strings that are ringing. So this is with this normal tuning. Sounds like that. If you tune this down, hopefully it will work. Just want to say as well, his vocal on that is probably my favourite. It's very husky, but again, it sounds like more experienced. Yeah. And he, he even, uh, I didn't notice this, he sings when I was younger than before. It sounds almost a bit like help. It's almost like <laughs> the first line point, of help. Yeah. yeah. I was younger, so much younger than before. Yeah. Well, this the vocal on this actually is um, an example of what we were saying before about how the timing is it's quite peculiar sometimes. It just kind of floats across the top of the uh, the playing I'll, mm. I'll try and give you an example in a second but this okay. so this is uh tu- with this string tuned down so you get this drone of these two strings at the same time mm. which they're the same note and then you also get this drone which is by itself it sounds horrible actually doesn't it <laughs> but that's what i mean it sounds a bit like a car horn like beeping yeah that's what I mean. Well, these songs, are, these songs are supposed to sound depressing, but they sound really warm. That sounds very warm yeah. to me. The guitar's sort of quite glorious. Maybe it's just because the playing is so good. Yeah, but you get this this string droning through it, which, and I think this is the only song that has this tuning. So it sounds like this now. a different overtone that goes over the top of it oh yeah and that this is another another example of that chord that is in lots of his songs where it goes to this chord oh yeah, yeah. I was saying before it's like uh, basically the lower three strings with uh, three things like on you play them all together yeah it's a definite trademark of his I can attempt to, I'll sing a verse just to show you what I was saying about his timing give us your huskiest voice okay yeah uh, me a moment but yeah, anyway so I'll just do the first verse when I 
was young, younger than before. Never saw the truth hanging from the door. Now I'm older, see it face to face. Now I'm older, gotta get up, clean the place. Ah, lovely. That's an example. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> but can you like it's it's hard to get the singing though because it just goes across everything and the words are weird lengths. It mm. kind of extends things where you wouldn't really expect and that kind of thing. It's yeah. So it's in curious. conclusion, he's very unique, really. Even though he become yeah. he comes from some kind of tradition. Yeah, know. yeah, it's absolutely unique. His voice, the way he plays his songs. And that, yeah, that's I mean, why it's very hard to do versions. I I would like to be able to play all of the songs, but it's. Just, <laughs> It's so yeah. hard to learn them and yeah. and sing at the same time and sing at the same time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I first started learning them, I I could play a fair few of them after I first heard him and I got that songbook. But then when I, I tried to sing them and it, it just fell apart, it was it was impossible. I think after a long time trying to practice them, I can probably do about three. <laughs> <laughs> and to use a cliche, the, these songs will just be appreciated forever for as long as people are around. Same as Beatles. Same yeah. as Loads of people. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, more people listen to Nick Drake now, obviously, than when he was alive. But I think more people listen to him now than 20 years ago when I first heard him as well. I think his popularity is, uh, yeah, it's just continues to increase. I think because, like, if someone is unique, then there aren't going to be new artists that will come out and do anything better. Like, Like Jimi Hendrix, for like... As an electric guitarist, in my opinion, you can't really get better than Jimi Hendrix. Mm. <laughs> Same with with Nick Drake. Like his his uh, guitar playing, his singing for that style, you can't really improve it. I think. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Yeah. Maybe maybe just to, before we finish, just to say, um, I think the direction the world's going in, the way we're getting more yeah. and more isolated, families are being spread out, and everything. Maybe it just makes even more sense. This sort of slight sense of isolation. But then, weirdly, his parents used to say they've obviously been dead quite a while, but they outlived him sadly for twenty odd years. And they said um, young people would come to their house in Tamworth in Arden and say, "Oh, you know, Nick's music has uplifted us." It's not that I still contend yeah. it's not depressing. I can see how if someone is sort of very isolated, they might sort of indulge themselves in it. I can see that. Yeah. But I think it's just glorious really more than yeah as, yeah i completely agree i mean I've, yeah. I've never thought his music was depressing no it's it's more yeah as you said it's kind of it's melancholic but it's wistful and if anything i would, I would say it's, it's optimistic the sound yeah. of the sound of his voice the tonality his guitar playing it's uplifting i think yeah and definitely beautiful yeah all right okay so for the video for the subscribers who are watching some video, thank you very much for watching. Oh, I see. Listening. <laughs> could, I, could I add one other thing as well? Oh, we were please, talking yeah. about <laughs> alternate tunings. So for this, the version that Melanie and I did of cello song, mm. it's actually, um, so I'm playing guitar and singing 
And we thought it might be nice to incorporate her singing. So she's singing on one verse and then joining me for some of the last verse. I really like it on that Family Tree album, the song that he sings with his sister. Uh, what's Oh yeah, what's it called? I really like the sound of both of them singing. Yeah, they're just singing in unison, but it sounds really nice. Mm. So I was partly thinking of that as well when we did that. So I thought Mm. thought it'd be nice to have her singing. But she's actually, she plays viola on that. And um, in order to get the the lower note, she had to retune the viola. So the low string is tuned down from a C to a B flat. So Uh. we've got guitar in alternate tuning and also viola in alternate tuning. (laughs) Oh, wow. So yeah, see so, yeah. Nick Drake influence. <laughs> yeah, crossing well, over onto a... viola as well. Yeah, obviously replacing the cello, right? Right. Yeah, because obviously a cello would be able to play that note. But, mm. uh, but yeah, mm. I thought it was a an interesting thing to add for oh, when people nice. hear hear that version of the song. Okay. All right. So yeah, once again for the video, people watching this on video, thanks for watching. For the audio, as of now, I haven't decided whether we're going to put cello song now or at the end of the podcast, but. One or the other, we're going to hear yourself and Melanie playing that. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. Thanks again to Kester, and you will be hearing from him later on. So, returning to the essay, we pick up from where I was just uh, reciting some of the lyrics from Brighter Later, Nick Drake's second album. Brighter Later was released in November 1970, by which time Nick had moved to another flat in North London, which he kept very sparse. There was no semblance of it ever being any kind of home, as bohemian isolation gave way to depression. Now, I'm just going to break in there. I'm not sure exactly how many places Nick lived in. I mentioned Haverstock Hill earlier, and Belsize Park was mentioned, but not knowing that part of London perfectly well, I'm not sure if those two locations actually refer to the same flat. But anyway, the most famous one was at Haverstock Hill, which is um, North London. Nick gave his only ever interview in early 1971 to Sounds magazine, where he mentioned his reluctance to play live and was very vague on future plans. His interviewer sensed that this was an ordeal for Nick, who was shy, self-effacing and monosyllabic throughout, his former understated charisma not shining through at all. Presumably he read the scant reviews of the album and the description in one of, quote, coffee and chat music, the song's quite similar, would not have helped his mood. And in Darker Than Deeper Sea there's more criticism of uh, the marketing of brighter later one thing perhaps i didn't mention with five leaves left is that they actually quoted the wrong song title for one of them and they transposed the order of two of the songs and in brighter later rather comically perhaps robert kirby is credited with bass arrangements where in fact it should be brass arrangements as far as live performances go it's important to dispel the myth that nick only did literally a handful of gigs He certainly didn't do many, the best guess being around two dozen, but he did travel as far as Liverpool and Hull in the north of England, and so could be said to have done a tour in the loosest sense. And I did mention also the tour he did in March 1970, backing up Sandy Denny's band. However, he clearly wasn't fit for the hard grind of folk venues and universities. He needed a quiet, attentive audience, and didn't seem to even once address them in all his live performances, the closest being when he held up his guitar to them as he walked off stage. He had a number of bad experiences, including a show to Lagerlouts at the Coventry Apprentices Christmas Ball, and was known to up and leave the stage in the middle of numbers, shades of Sid Barrett, as he did in his final known appearance supporting Ralph Streets of London McTell at Yule Technical College in June 1970. McTell was one of the folk musicians who did work his way up from the bottom, driving himself across the country to do up to 200 gigs a year, 
and describing the folk circuit as unforgiving and competitive, requiring stamina and guts. Nick's biggest audiences were the aforementioned 1969 support slot at Royal Festival Hall, a venue he returned to to back John and Beverly Martin in 1970, and the Queen Elizabeth Hall the same year, and on these occasions he played to a few thousand people. However, it seemed that even when the crowd were attentive and appreciated his extraordinary guitar playing, he wouldn't address them or look them in the eye, and seemed to play as if he were in a recording studio, playing and singing into the mic, but feeling no need to perform in any way at all. Martin remembers him being cripplingly nervous at gigs they shared, and maybe only a performer can understand the horrible feeling that courses through your being as the eyes of the audience are upon you, quietly judging you, and the nerves don't allow you to give the performance you know you can, or feel comfortable enough to engage with the patrons who've paid to see you. As word occasionally filtered through of this reluctant performer, his friends at Marlborough were baffled since they remembered him as very keen to perform. Perhaps doing it alone to strangers was a lot of the problem. One poignant engagement was a support for Graham Bond at the bottom of a large bill in Bedford in May 1970. Nick had hitched with a friend from Wiltshire to London to see Bond and his band in the Marlborough days just five years earlier when he'd been a bright-eyed hopeful living a carefree existence. He must have mused on how that seemed a hundred years ago and perhaps wondered just what had gone wrong. Like Nick's old school and university friends, his sister Gabrielle completely rejects the idea that Nick had always been a reluctant performer and puts his later reticence and fear down to his illness. She was also quoted as saying that, As an artist you need a soft, sensitive centre, but a tough-as-nails exterior, and maybe Nick was just born with a skin too few. That title was of course used for the recommended documentary, highly recommended in fact. He would still pull out his guitar and play at friends' houses where he could perform introspectively and on his own terms, but despite the approaches and gentle pleas of the sympathetic Island Records executives, live performance was, by the dawn of 1971, totally out of the question. The Warlock demos were promotional recordings of songs by Island artists performed by session musicians, including Reggie Dwight, later to be known to the world as Elton John. Elton performed several of Nick's songs, and Nick also had one song of his officially covered in his lifetime, one known as Mayfair, that ironically, he never officially recorded himself. There was also apparently a second John Peel session for Radio 1, where Nick was once again accompanied to the session by his very sympathetic witch season label mate, Anthea Joseph, who remembers the session taking hours and Nick being very nervous. Nick also did a Radio 2 session with a Cambridge friend, where he played Celeste, a keyboard instrument, as well as guitar, and he would later do some session work on guitar, organised by Robert Kirby. Brighter later's lack of impact, once again not a big surprise in those days, considering Nick's unwillingness to promote it, was compounded by the fact that this was the height of the singer-songwriter boom, at least for the ones that regularly played live and gave interviews, and Nick may have also felt that he'd ceded control to Joe Boyd and allowed him to do the record Boyd wanted, without getting the commercial payoff in return. Nick would later blame Boyd to some extent for his lack of success, in a rare display of overt anger. Reports vary as to how much of his time Nick spent stoned, but he certainly indulged when he visited friends like John Martin and would often stay for days without speaking much before suddenly and wordlessly getting up and leaving. Linda Thompson, who was Nick's girlfriend, in quotes, for a while, admittedly no more than a kiss and a cuddle, describes him as spectral and not really there most of the time. Ironically, considering Nick's very respectable upbringing, the one person who may have been able to pull him out of his stupor was a minor East End villain whose house Nick and Joe Boyd would go to to play endless games of liar's dice and drink and smoke. Boyd remembers that Nick would be very animated there and the host would G him up and bring him out of himself, 
something his more well-heeled friends were never able to do. Now, a couple of things on that to do with the friends not intervening. There is a quote in um, Dark and the Deeper Sea, it wasn't cool to get involved. And regarding this uh, East End villain, presuming it's the same one, he was apparently called Dave, and he supplied uh, lots of drugs, including Mandrax and uh, almost certainly LSD, I think, certainly weed and, and heroin. And he, in fact, gave Nick a car for his uh, good custom. So Nick obviously went there and bought from him quite regularly. It seems from uh, the Trevor Dan book that Nick did snort heroin on certainly more than one occasion or, or more occasions than was hinted at in the Patrick Humphreys book. And the book, the second book suggests that he snorted heroin with Alice Ormsby Gore, who was actually living with Eric Clapton, I think, at that time. Eric Clapton was, of course, a heroin addict at the time. Some of his friends say that, you know, he wouldn't have had the money for a serious habit, but he started to exhibit signs of heroin use, I would say. You know, lack of personal hygiene. He was always in the same clothes. I think he only had, I don't know, maybe two sets of clothes, something like that. So um, as much as uh, Nick Drake fans probably don't want to believe that, it seems that probably was the case. Regarding the live performances, there was one interesting detail. An Australian folk guitarist called Ross Granger think did a number of gigs with Nick and he actually said that in 1969 Nick was playing most of the Pink Moon songs and even was playing Toe the Line which was a later discovered song that was apparently from 1974 so that's an interesting detail I think we know for sure that he wrote Things Behind the Sun which was a Pink Moon song much earlier but uh, again you know (laughs) who knows what to believe not saying that anybody's lying but It seems strange to me that he would have written all the Pink Moon songs by 1969. And of course, that would give Pink Moon a completely different flavour. You know, you imagine that he's writing these songs in uh, probably 1971 in a cold English winter in London, a lonely winter in London. And regarding the weed use, again, there are suggestions that he was exhibiting the first signs of psychosis. And Trevor Dan points out that schizophrenia is always associated with split personality and hearing voices in your head but other symptoms of it are lack of emotion low energy and motivation lack of interest in life and a thing called affective flattening is a a blank expression and a lack of facial and physical movement and you know i've seen this before with people who are users of drugs when they smile or when they emote in any way it seems like their face is not moving you know maybe one part is moving but there's a sort of stare and a lack of movement that goes on and the other one is social isolation and a lot of friends would say that what happened to nick was a continuation of some of the slight warning signs that they'd seen a few years earlier so picking up the story at the end of 1970 boyd feeling the financial pressure of maintaining his witch season label sold it to island records and up sticks back to his native us taking a very lucrative position in the music division of warner brothers film studios Before leaving, though, he arranged for Nick's records to be kept permanently on the island catalogue and never deleted. He may also have already heard that Nick intended his next album to be stripped down and a solo record in every sense of the word, so Boyd's conscience at leaving his charge may have been eased. Nick had come to rely heavily on Joe, so this was another body blow to his already fragile state. Looking at their relationship, you get the sense of Nick as the Edward Norton character in Fight Club to Boyd's Tyler Durden, albeit a more relaxed, toned-down version. Boyd was urbane, comfortable around people and able to forge romantic relationships, 
all things lacking in Nick Drake. Nick had friends and acquaintances, but he'd always compartmentalised these groups, and sadly they would only come to meet each other at his funeral. Nick's third and final album was Pink Moon, whose production and execution was in marked contrast to his first two efforts. Nick contacted John Wood in late 1971 to state his intention of recording his next album with just the two of them present and no other musicians involved. They recorded it over two nights with just guitar and voice except a smattering of Nick's piano on the title track. And in fact they recorded it after midnight because I think it was done at short notice and the studio was already booked during the normal hours. The album is short at just 28 minutes and certainly stark and bare, perhaps influenced by John Lennon's recent Plastic Ono Band album and Sid Barrett's extremely raw solo efforts. However, many don't find the album depressing to listen to, and it's curious that Black Eyed Dog aside, Black Eyed Dog is a 1974 recording, so after Pink Moon, Nick always sounded calm on his recordings and not in the least distraught, despite what was happening in his life outside the songs. Perhaps it was the release and comfort of being in front of the mic with a sympathetic engineer in wood and nobody around to distract or judge him, and it's one of the few happy elements of his story that these songs will now be around forever and are certain to be enjoyed by every new generation, such is their quality and the connection that so many listeners feel with them. And I include myself in that. Having said that, Pink Moon is often at times uneasy and restless, the songs mostly conceived in a dingy North London flat, with no warmth and love, at a time when Nick wasn't receiving visitors and was seen by one friend alone and just staring at the walls. There's a darker edge and it's deliberately stark, though Nick's guitar work is as magnificent as ever and his voice sounds more mature. The voice of experience. The song sounds strong with no backing, led by the imperious title track, and are again a credit to Nick's playing and John Wood's mic placement, even if Wood later played his contribution down. Nick Drake's music always seemed to be a curious mixture of light and dark, bright and downbeat. Vocally, Things Behind the Sun sees him pull off a similarly nifty trick to Brighter Later's Fly, this time singing alternate verses that reflect his paranoia before answering them with more upbeat advice to himself about how he can rise above his troubles. Just one note about uh, the recording of Pink Moon. There is a story that on the way to one of the two sessions, he called in at Sophia Ride's house. I think I mentioned her earlier. She was a friend, possibly again one of these kind of girlfriends and uh, he called at her house and uh, either showed her the lyrics or asked her to write some out can't remember exactly but it's interesting that um, in her flat she had post-impressionist paintings on the wall and there's a song on Pink Moon called Free Ride R-I-D-E her name is spelled R-Y-D-E and it seems like that's a little bit of a pun and a nod to her particularly since one of the lyrics is the pictures you hang on the wall Sophia Ride wasn't too happy with that. She just recently passed away, actually. Lyrically, the romantic poet of 1969 has virtually disappeared, and the words are undoubtedly more authentic and personal. For the final time, here is a selection of the best of them. Pink Moon. I saw it written and I saw it said, Pink Moon is on its way, and none of you stand so tall, Pink Moon's gonna get you all. Place to be. When I was younger, younger than before, I never saw the truth hanging from the door. Now I'm older, I see it face to face, and now I'm older, got to get up and clean the place. And I was green, greener than the hill, where flowers flew and the sun shone still. Now I'm darker than the deepest sea, just hand me down, give me a place to be. And I was strong, strong in the sun, I thought I'd see when day was done. Now I'm weaker than the palest blue, I was so weak in this need for you. And a few things about that song before I carry on. Darker than the deepest sea is... um, 
as I mentioned, uh, the name of the second biography is taken from that lyric. And um, the first lyric, when I was younger, younger than before, sounds a bit like Help by the Beatles. He also mentions Day Was Done. There was a song on Five Leaves Left called Day Is Done, so possibly a nod back. I'm more and more convinced as I read that that he didn't write these in 1969, but yeah, as I said, don't know for sure. Things Behind the Sun. Please beware of them that stare. They'll only smile to see you while your time away. Once you've seen what they have been, to win the earth just don't seem worth. Look around you, find the ground is not so far from where you are, but don't be too wise. For down below they never grow, they're always tired and charms are hired from out of their eyes. Take your time and you'll be fine, and say a prayer for people there who live on the floor. And if you see what's meant to be, don't name the day or try to say it happened before. Don't be shy, you learn to fly and see the sun when day is done. And the people around your head who say everything's been said and the movement in your brain sends you out into the rain. Know. Know that I love you. Know that I don't care. Know that I see you. Know that I'm not there. Parasite. Lifting the mask from a local clown, feeling down like him. Seeing the light in a station bar and travelling far in sin. Take a look, you may see me on the ground. Falling so far on a silver spoon, making the moon for fun. Changing a robe for a size too small, people all get hung. For I am the parasite of this town. Take a look, you may see me in the dirt. For I am the parasite who hangs from your skirt. One interesting lyric I wanted to comment on. Falling so far on a silver spoon. Of course, born with a silver spoon means born in a privileged uh, environment to a privileged family, which he undoubtedly was. Ride. But hear me calling, won't you give me a free ride? Harvest Breed. Falling fast and falling free, you look to find a friend. Falling fast and falling free, this could just be the end. Falling fast, you stoop to touch and kiss the flowers that bend. From the morning. A day once dawned and it was beautiful. A day once dawned from the ground. Then the night she fell and the air was beautiful. The night she fell all around. So look, see the days, the endless coloured ways. And go play the game that you learned from the morning. And now we rise and we are everywhere from the ground. So look, see the sights, the endless summer nights, and go play the game that you learned from the morning. So just before I carry on with the essay again, uh, just a few other details. Uh, Something I didn't put in the essay, in fact, was that um, Nick actually had uh, kidney stones, had back and groin pains, and that was the diagnosis. So that was a physical illness to go with the, the psychological anguish he was having at that time. And with Linda Thompson, she also said that as well as her not quite romance with Nick, he had a similar relationship with a friend of hers as well. So um, I think we mentioned earlier the sexual issue probably wouldn't have helped, but I don't think he was asexual. I think it was just another complication in his life. Nick was also offered a spot on a show with a curious title of Disco 2, which is a forerunner of the old grey whistle test, which a lot of you will have heard of. It was presented by Whispering Bob Harris for a long time, but Nick didn't turn up for the audition. Picking up the story, around the time of the recording of Pink Moon, Nick decided that he couldn't cope alone in London, especially without Joe Boyd around, and he reluctantly returned to his parents' house in Tamworth in Arden. By now there was no question of live performances to promote the album, and even his customary photo session with Keith Morris was a chilling affair. Morris remembers that, quote, whereas before we'd bounced ideas around, now he just basically sat while I snapped away, almost like I was doing a still life. Morris didn't see Nick regularly and so was shocked when he saw him again in 1971 for the Pink Moon photo shoot. 
the contrast between the next scene in these photos compared to just two years earlier when he was promoting Five Leaves Left is staggering and quite horrifying. All the expression gone from his once boyish face, replaced by a haunted look. The cover for the album featured unsurprisingly a pink moon, which was actually a blood red moon. During an eclipse, the Earth's shadow can turn a moon blood red, believed to be a portent of catastrophes. And it's interesting with Keith Morris, who appears on a couple of these documentaries. He met Nick a number of times, I imagine, but he did three photo sessions for the three albums. And the state that he found Nick in is a very good uh, reflection of what was happening. So for the first one, Five Leaves Left, Nick was very bright. They had a good time. As he said, they bounced ideas around and Nick seemed to be in the best of spirits. Brighter later, Keith Morris could see, you know, something was changing, but it wasn't quite there. He didn't look too bad. And then, as we said, the Pink Moon photo shoot. So interestingly, considering the description there, you'd think that was towards the end of his life, but that's actually three years before he died. So it was uh, a relatively long drawn out decline. Pink Moon has remained a firm favourite of fans and now outsells his other two albums considerably, despite predictably low sales at the time. It certainly sounds like his most honest record and you get the impression that he was no longer recording songs to become famous, but more as a personal necessity. Therefore, what reviews came were probably of little or no interest to him, and criticisms of the songs seeming unfinished appear to have no relevance to the artist himself. Interestingly, Robert Kirby remembers fragments of some of the Pink Moon songs dating back to 1968, and to some extent it's the start production and the delivery of the songs that marks them out. So yes, it seems like they were fragments, but I still would say they were full songs. It's true to say, though, that perhaps he was now tackling real life and his own fears rather than the idealised view of love and the world that's found on the first album in particular. His parents never enjoyed the album and found it hard to listen to, though they always loved the more hopeful closer from the morning, which seemed to promise a new day and a happier new beginning. One of the lyrics, Now we rise and we are everywhere, would later be carved onto Nick's headstone. Ireland's full-page ad for the album was quite extraordinarily candid, highlighting the mysterious nature of the recordings and questioning why they are even releasing his records when the first two haven't sold a shit, before concluding that it's because of Nick's incredible talent. Time Out wrote of the album's exquisite 3am introversions, but predicted that Nick would remain in the shadows. Back at home with his parents, he told his mother that I've failed at everything I've ever tried to do. His parents took him to a psychiatrist in London and he reluctantly began to take three types of antidepressant, including triptazole, which would eventually kill him. On the request of Rodney and Molly Drake, Joe Boyd called Nick from London to tell him that nobody was judging him for getting help. Brian Wells was a friend of Nick's and later became a psychiatrist. He believes that, quote, Nick withdrew because there was safety in his own company. It was more of a terrible existential rut than a biological depressive illness, so a drug like triptazole wouldn't have really helped, not to mention the powerful side effects. It should be said that in those days doctors were more uncomfortable with non-physical illness and depression tended to be seen as a temporary and somewhat adolescent condition that the individual would presumably grow out of. Real madness was traditionally deemed to be untreatable and constituted a trip to the loony bin. Chris Blackwell, the head of Island Records, generously kept Nick on a weekly stipend and also let him use his flat in Gibraltar for a while to get away from his surroundings. In another nod to earlier happy days, Nick may well have remembered himself and Marlborough friend David Wright seven years earlier planning a world trip that would start in Gibraltar. He did seem to enjoy his time away, but it didn't last and he suffered a breakdown around April 1972, two months after the release of Pink Moon, and was hospitalised for five weeks in Warwickshire. Brian Wells visited him there and gave him a copy of Anthony Scaduto's biography of Bob Dylan, 
a songwriter who'd been such a great inspiration to Nick in his early days. At this point, it's interesting to note the timeline, since most would assume that Nick didn't live long past the release of Pink Moon, but in fact he lived another two years and nine months. If you trace the same amount of time backwards, you find yourself at May 1969, when he was busy recording his first album and still a student at Cambridge. John Martin released his celebrated album Solid Air in 1973, the title song of which was Done for a Friend of Mine. Martin was as close to Nick as you could be at that time, and later said that the world had not quite lived up to his expectations, as well as talking of the indecent parasitic opportunism that pervades the music business. And a quick note about John Martin, he did visit Nick at Farley's and did try to rouse him. When you read about the story of Nick Drake, you often think, why didn't more people just grab him and shake him and say, look, what's going on, you know? And apparently he did that, and Nick started to rail and rant about the injustices of the world. It's interesting that on one of the documentaries, Brian Wells, who we were just talking about there, became a psychiatrist, expresses the view that he and a few others actually got quite annoyed with Nick and that Nick did seem to have some sense of entitlement and presumption that with his talent and his looks, he would become a, you know, a professional musician, have a proper career. So, um, you know, nobody's perfect, of course. Other friends have said, Alex Henderson, I think it was, said... Um, Occasionally the old Nick would return and you'd sort of think that everything was going to be all right, but then he'd disappear again. There'd be signs of life for a certain time, you know, it could even be a whole day, but then he just couldn't be sustained. Jeremy Mason hadn't seen Nick for two years and was shocked by his appearance and silent demeanour. Mason traces a slow decline from X in 1967, pointing to Nick's drug experimentation and getting lost in his image to some extent but it can hardly be said that Nick was faking it by the final days in London in 1971, as he started neglecting to wash and let his fingernails grow a la Howard Hughes. Rather amusingly, friends at Cambridge remember that back then, Nick didn't want to do any washing up in case he damaged the nails that were so integral to his guitar style. Now he simply didn't care. Linda Thompson, yes, uh, I think that might be in a bit later that she met him and made the Howard Hughes observation, or later made it. She said he had long fingernails, he was absolutely filthy. Again, that would point to drug use, I think, as well as um, a general despair and a malaise. A curious episode from 1971 involves another old university friend, Paul Wheeler, who had wound up as one of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's personal assistants. John and Yoko had been living at the palatial Tittenhurst Park in Ascot before moving to New York in September 1971, a move that initially was not presumed to be permanent. Tittenhurst was therefore kept in permanent readiness for the royal couple's imminent return, and Nick visited Wheeler along with Brian Wells soon after John Yoko's departure. The three of them ate hash cookies and the two visitors marvelled at the all-white mansion with its collection of Lennon's guitars and gold records, not to mention the 71 acres of land attached to the house. One can only wonder what Nick would have thought of Lennon's incredible fame and success, something Nick had once sought as he strolled the house in a cannabis haze. Although Nick had no real success in the USA, he had accumulated some fans, among them David Geffen, who would have John and Yoko on his label in 1980 for their comeback record Double Fantasy. A compilation of the first two albums, imaginatively titled Nick Drake, was released in Nick's lifetime and Rolling Stone gave it a glowing review, calling the music beautiful, decadent, dreamlike and slick, if that could be considered a compliment, evoking a hypnotic spell of opiated languor with comparisons made to Donovan and also Van Morrison's seminal 1968 album Astral Weeks. And we do know that Nick uh, listened a lot to Astral Weeks. That was one of his favourite albums at the time it came out. Inevitably, the lack of touring killed any hopes of success stateside, 
though the famous Troubadour nightclub in California did put on a show of sorts in which the record was played accompanied by a cardboard cutout of Nick on stage. That seems too ridiculous to be true, but apparently it is. Once he'd seemingly resigned himself to not becoming a successful and famous musician, Nick allowed his father to get him a job as a trainee computer programmer, but it didn't last. Incredibly, Nick also applied to join the army at one point, and one wonders if the necessary discipline might have helped him for a while. Realistically, however, it would seem hopelessly optimistic to believe that the quiet to the point of total silence, shy, withdrawn, frail shell that he'd become by 1972 would have stuck it out for too long. As far as his activities in the last couple of years of his life went, he seems to have enjoyed driving and did get his own car in which he would go for long, aimless drives and often let his petrol run out, at which point he would call Rodney at whatever hour it was to come and pick him up. Anthea Joseph remembers seeing him at Ireland a few months before his death. He was sitting reading the paper, said, Hi, Anth, and that was it. He was there for absolutely no reason, except that maybe he didn't want to be alone, despite having no ability to communicate by this point. Nick's silence and malaise grew through 1973, and John Wood was surprised to once again get a call from him, saying that he had some new songs to record. The recording of the final four songs is believed to have taken place in February 1974, though it may well have been July, prompted by a feature article on Nick from June 1974 in Zigzag magazine. Joe Boyd was in London at that time and came to the session, shocked and chilled by Nick's appearance and the fact that for the first time he was in too much of a state to record his guitar and vocals together. It may be selfish to say this, but this state of affairs does allow us now to hear outtakes of these songs without vocals and hear Nick's still remarkable guitar playing in all its glory. In my humble opinion, the songs are well up to the previous standard, to some extent an extension of the starkness of much of Pink Moon. Hanging on a star sounds like a message to Joe Boyd, who Nick had previously blamed for his lack of stardom, while Black Eyed Dog is clearly about depression and evokes the idea of Robert Johnson's Hellhound on my trail and echoes Winston Churchill's description of his depression as the Black Dog. It must have been a strange session for all concerned, especially hearing the monosyllabic and almost totally withdrawn Nick suddenly blurting out his at times hysterical vocal to Black Eyed Dog. Conversely, there is a remarkable calm to the vocal of a personal favourite of mine, Rider on the Wheel. Yes, Black Eyed Dog is a real outlier in terms of the vocal. Other than uh, on, I think it's Fly, where he sings uh, Give Me Second Grace, and he's quite, there's a certain desperation there. Black Eyed Dog is quite unlike anything else. It's a fantastic recording. and Like I say, you can hear it just instrumentally, and the guitar work, I think, is only on three strings, in fact, is amazing. As previously mentioned, Nick never had a steady girlfriend or perhaps not a relationship of any kind, but there were rumours of a romance with a beautiful French chanteur, Francoise Hardy, who'd had a British hit with All Over the World in 1965. When Hardy expressed interest in recording one or more of Nick's songs in 1970, he and Joe Boyd visited her in Paris, although nothing transpired of the recordings or any hint of a romance. Hardy was and did remain a big fan of Nick's music, saying that the soul of his songs touched her deeply and they may have met again when Nick spent some time in Paris just weeks before his death. Hardy's memory is vague, but she did recall a dinner where he barely spoke, either in French or English. It does seem, however, that, as with his Gibraltar trip in 1972, he did find some relief in new surroundings that rekindled fond memories, but the shadows would close in again when he returned to what he must have considered a rather pointless existence back with his parents in the idyllic English countryside. So before we get to the final paragraphs and the end of this story just a few more details i mentioned earlier that graham bond who was a, something of a musical hero of nick's he died uh, the same year and in fact threw himself in front of a train 
Julian Ormsby Gore, who was one of his uh, socialite friends, he shot himself in 1974 as well. Paul Wheeler, the one who was at Tittenhurst Park, remembers that at his final meeting with Nick, Nick actually asked Paul about depression, thinking that he might know more. So Nick was aware of it, and Sophia Ride, as I said earlier, was apparently immortalising the song Free Ride. She used to get visits from Nick in London. As I said earlier, Nick would often just appear. you got to remember that these are the days before uh, anything like smartphones and the internet and things, and people did turn up at people's houses in those days. It wasn't totally unknown. It's just strange that Nick would turn up and then not talk and then often just disappear without saying anything. Sophia Ride remembers that when Nick would visit her, he'd be very embarrassed to take his medication. And on the subject of the medication... I think it's in the second book again that um, he talks about how the three types of antidepressant Nick was taking may have, to some extent, counteracted each other or had powerful effects, like one as an as an upper and one as a downer. So I think they may have played havoc with him, and if he was then able to get recreational drugs from somewhere at the same time, you'd dread to think, you know, what's happening to his insides as as well as all the things that were happening in his head. On Sunday, November the 28th, 1974, Nick went to bed early, never to return. On his turntable at home was an album of the Bach Brandenburg Concertos, bought in X in 1967, which he may have listened to on that final night. And he may have also possibly read The Myth of Sisyphus, sorry if that's a terrible pronunciation, collection of essays by the French philosopher Albert Camus, which begins, There is but one serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. Nick would often have bad nights and Molly would find him downstairs in the kitchen in the early hours, unable to sleep and eating cornflakes. On this occasion she didn't wake until the next morning and when he hadn't emerged at midday she went into his room and found him lying across his bed. The verdict was suicide, a deliberate overdose of triptizol and he was believed to have died around 6am that morning. Gabrielle believes that he made an impulsive decision out of anguish to keep taking more and more of the tablets so that at least something would change and the horrible rut he was in wouldn't continue in its present form. The riddle that has continued is about what really did happen to Nick Drake that caused his life force to drain away. There are rumours of a romance or even engagement to a lady in Paris, presumably not Francoise Hardy, that may have fallen through just before his death and tipped him over the edge. Presumably his access to recreational drugs was very limited in Warwickshire, but one chilling occurrence happened after his death, when John Martin took the enemy's Nick Kent, who later wrote a much lauded obituary to Nick, challenging the suicide verdict, to a squat in Labrick Grove in West London that was full of heroin addicts. Nick had apparently spent a lot of time there while living in Hampstead, and had visited just three days before his death, asking, Do you remember me? I used to be somebody. What happened to me? Brian Wells definitely remembers Nick expressing a desire to try heroin, followed by a rather comical phone call to score some, which ended with the paranoid dealer getting freaked out and hanging up. So this heroin issue is sort of suggested in Patrick Humphrey's book, but as you heard me read earlier in the second book, it seems fairly clear that he was doing that as much as we could know that. It would be nice to report that the rock world suddenly took notice of his death and paid it great mind, but he'd faded out of the spotlight two or more years earlier, and there was little response. Friends were shocked, but not particularly surprised, though those closest to Nick had noted some recent improvement in his mood. Perhaps inevitably Robert Kirby and others expressed guilt at not trying to do more, 
and not contacting Nick more often when it was clear that he was on the decline. But as often happens in this harsh world, we are all too busy trying to survive and protect ourselves to don't take the time to look out for others or contact them without a particular practical reason. It's fair to say that Nick probably would not have responded had friends tried harder. The bright spot of this story, though it came far too late, is that now, of course, Nick Drake is a popular and highly respected musician and his albums sell by the bucket load, or at least they were before the age of digital downloads. It's popularly believed that the use of Pink Moon in a Volkswagen commercial in 1999 and the emergence at that time of the internet led to Nick's current status. And it's true that they made a huge impact, but the interest started quite a bit earlier and there was a gradual rise in interest as more and more established stars started to mention his name and the sheer quality of his music, along with the poignancy of his story, could no longer be contained. Nick Kent's NME feature on Nick Drake in early 1975 got noticed, and in March 1979, Ireland released the box set Fruit Tree. In 1985, the trio Dream Academy dedicated their hit Life in a Northern Town to Nick, and soon after came the first Nick Drake compilation, named Heaven in a Wild Flower, after a line from one of Nick's favourite poets, William Blake. By the mid-1980s, enough unreleased tracks had been unearthed for an unofficial fourth studio album called Time of No Reply. The title track one that Nick had played live and recorded for his first album, but decided not to release. The album was mostly fresh songs, including the final four, with some alternate takes included to stretch it to album length. It was a wonderful surprise for Nick's growing army of fans to hear these new tracks, all fitting the Nick Drake mould and quality controlled by both Nick's parents and Joe Boyd. Musicians such as Kate Bush, Paul Weller, The Black Crows and R.E.M.'s Peter Buck started to cite Nick as an influence and Robert Smith stated that The Cure's name came from one of the lines from Time Has Told Me. His parents would quite frequently find visitors at their door asking about Nick and the momentum continued to grow as he came to represent a doomed romantic hero and the quality of his music shone through. In the late 1990s, prior to the Volkswagen ad, there was a radio documentary called Fruit Tree and two wonderful documentaries called A Stranger Among Us and A Skin Too Few, the latter featuring interviews with Gabrielle Drake, Joe Boyd, John Wood, Robert Kirby and others. So just a quick note on that. Yes, um, the radio documentary was called Fruit Tree, The Nick Drake Story, and it was narrated by Danny Thompson, who played uh, double bass on a lot of Nick's recordings. And that same documentary was updated in 2004, renamed Lost Boy in Search of Nick Drake, and was this time narrated by uh, a certain Brad Pitt. More compilations of previously released material followed, and then in 2007 came Family Tree, the official release of home demos made in the two years prior to the release of Five Leaves Left. His sister performed on one song, and there were two originals performed by his mother Molly. Listeners also finally got to hear Nick's speaking voice, sounding upbeat and happy, at one point imitating a German accent as he asked rhetorically, or to a silent observer, what could I play that would be interesting? A fanzine was already in circulation by this point and there would be tribute concerts and further radio documentaries. At a loss at how to end this look at Nick's life and music, I will instead quote the last two paragraphs of Patrick Humphrey's excellent book, Nick Drake, A Biography, albeit written in 1997, in which subsequent time the situation has changed somewhat, and I thank you for reading this far. Quote, At times the myth has threatened to drown out the melodies, and the audience have imposed their own flaws and fantasies onto a virtually blank canvas. The cult of Nick Drake is, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, Narcissus glimpsing his own reflection, unable to tear himself away from the beauty he finds in the mirror. For some, the real beauty lies in the emptiness. There are no easy answers. 
Perhaps in the end, facts can only diminish the myth, but ultimately the life is more important. For whatever the truth about Nick Drake's life, it remains a tragedy, just as his legacy of extraordinary songs remains a triumph and a joyful one at that. So that's the end of the essay, but I'm going to add my own little coda from Trevor Dan's book, Dark and the Deepest Sea. This is to do with artists and some of Nick's influences. All artists construct the world as they see it, and we are fortunate indeed to be allowed into Nick's. William Blake said, I must create a system or be controlled by another man's. Nick Drake understood this, and like Blake, created his own vision, his own symbols and his own myths. From the metaphysical poets like George Herbert and John Donne, he took the idea of codifying the temporal world using metaphor and allegory and using words with double and triple meanings. From jazz he took free-form modal structures that ask more questions than they answer and from the acoustic folk tradition he took a powerful rhythmic engine to propel his music. As Robin Hitchcock says, Nick Drake made a dreamy fatalistic model that took 20 odd years to fly but is now working better than ever. Those were actually the last words of that book, so notice that both biographers decided to uh, end with something hopeful. And I guess my final words here is is just to, well, thank you for listening, of course, and uh, recommend highly that you seek out Nick's work if you haven't already, and of course I recommend those two biographies. I'll put the original essay that I wrote in the show notes, and um, I'm going to sign off now, and I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Kester Jones and Melanie Lawrence with their version of the cello song. This was a long podcast, possibly the longest I've ever done. As I'm saying this now, I haven't edited it, obviously, but uh, I can feel it's going to be long. And this is also the end of Life and Life Only's first year. 23 episodes in 2021. I started uh, right at the beginning of the year, and it will be going strong in 2022. As I said right at the outset of, I think, the first podcast, and as I've said on couple of shows that I've appeared on it's a podcast about life so you can't really go wrong with uh, subject matter so we'll continue to be as eclectic as ever but uh, to generally be looking at inner and outer truth in all their forms so that's it I'll see you in 2022 all the best and goodbye Told of a life where 
if one day you should see me in the crowd, lend a hand and lift me to your place in the cloud. support my work across my three podcasts which are life and life only glass island on john lennon and film gold go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash anthony rotuno where you can make a one-off donation or take out a monthly or yearly subscription which will give you early access and bonus podcast content thanks again for listening